Welcome back to the Gonzo James Bond 007 Specials. Part 2, back for more. Roger Moore is James Bond 007 in Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die. My name's Bond. James Bond. Names is for tombstones, baby. Waste him now. James Bond is back, and wherever he drops in, it can mean only one thing. Trouble! This is the Bond adventure with more excitement, more action, more danger, and more. Much more. Roger Moore as James Bond 007. Seven is on a worldwide manhunt. The body count is going up. And where Bond stops to visit, he leaves his mark on everything. They'll kill you. They will kill us. Love is lesson number two. Togetherness. It's the time before we leave for lesson number three. Absolutely. We have returned, and in true time-travelling style, what seemed like two weeks to you since part one was actually nearly four months for us. So, like the series we're discussing, we're going to pick the torch back up and carry on, all the while hoping you don't notice we're just doing the same thing episode after episode. Joining me once again is James Bond Jr. himself, Mr. James Bachelor of Game Burst. No one can stop him, but scum always tries. Young Bond cuts through each web of spies. Mr. Shaw, I've been expecting you. <laughs> Are you stroking your white cat? I am, I am. Good. No, 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 common misconception. That is not Blofeld who said I've been expecting you. Oh, is it Dr. No? No. Stromberg. Carl Stromberg. Oh, for goodness sake. Come in, Mr. Bond. <laughs> I've been expecting you. And I can't who was the one who said this. it? Goodbye, Mr. Bond. That was, that that was Ernst Stavro Blofeld, the version, yeah. version three. The yeah. Pleasant yeah. Donald Pleasance, yeah. Right. Yeah. And as the wise old M uh, to our by turns enthusiastic and cynical double O agents, Mr. Gary Zanterio Blow is back again to make sure we stay on track. I am indeed, yes, thank you very much. I quite like the idea of being M. I, I, I can picture you yeah. in that desk, like the, the old style M. Lovely, office. yeah. I can imagine you in Gorgeous that. Gorgeous smells that in there as well, yeah. No, yeah, I'm all for that. That sounds good to me. So for this episode, we are tackling the seven films of Roger Moore who epitomised the British agent throughout the 70s and early 80s, along with the all-too-brief run of Mr. Timothy Dalton. Also on the table is the non-eon, non-official and decidedly non-canonical Never Say Never Again, which saw Connery return to the role for the last time in 1983. So, OK, let's talk about Connery to Moore first. So uh, how much do you guys know about the transition there? From Diamonds Are Forever to Live and Let Die. As we said, I don't read much into the kind of the backdrop, so I don't know a great deal. Well, I know that Moore was lined up several mm. times before that, and obviously he was when he was making The Saint, he was basically just James Bond in training anyway. Yeah. Um, he says he, he didn't want to do the Connery performance, and neither did he want to do Simon Templar. Now, I've never seen him play The Saint, but I'd imagine it's a bit like what? the way he plays James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> ITV, whatever it is, to every day it's on. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, well, anyway, I don't know if you guys have checked out Wikipedia all that often, but from the sounds of it, like every two episodes, they went casting for another Bond, and, and you know, people that ended up playing Bond years later got got considered way in advance. Mm. Like, for example, uh, Dalton was considered straight after um, Connery, which is mental, and Brosnan was considered straight after Moore. Well, Brosnan, I think, was considered during Moore. I remember, like, was because Brosnan's wife was in For Your Eyes Only, and I believe he was mm. he was approached at that point. Brosnan actually went to visit the set, that, and that's when he first met uh, the Broccolis or something like that. But um, now Dalton was also asked if he wanted to do that role, but he'd just seen a bunch of goofy Moore ones and said, <laughs> that's not James Bond I remember, so he decided against it. I think that was, now, in, that was when he was doing Remington Steel, wasn't it, I think? That was, like, that was Brosnan, yeah. yeah. There was a big sort of thing where, where Broccoli said, Remington Steel will not be playing Bond. And then Brosnan came back and played him years later. So, but looking at it the way it should have been, I, I think Moore did it for too long and Dalton did it for too short. And ultimately, there's a crossover point when Moore started to get too old that Dalton should have taken over way earlier. I think it was actually for, for your eyes only. Moore should have given up after Moonraker. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been better? Uh, no, I quite like Moore having for your eyes only as a kind of one last serious one to redeem himself. Mm. And I think, Before you know, Dalton would have been good as a, Dalton would have been good entering in kind of, say, I think a view to a kill would be more of a better in, they, entry port. They would never have made Octopussy in a view to a kill if it had been Timothy no. Dalton. Because no, they, 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 do, they do change the films based on the, the actor that's going to play them. So, mm. so, yeah, you'd have seen The Living Day, Day, Daylights earlier, basically. Yeah. Mm. A bit more of a sort of, well, they'd maybe have just done uh, uh, Few Eyes Only and then carried on in that form. Yeah. Yeah. More serious. We'd have gotten two, re- you know, much better Bond films. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, shall we? Uh, uh, Live and Let Die. Uh, 1973. Wings. Yes. This ever-changing world in which we live in Makes you give in a cry Say live and let die And wasn't it George Martin doing the music for this? And he was the um, one of the music producers for the Beatles. Hence, hence Wings, yeah. Hence, hence Wings and uh, McCartney himself. And it, was, it was the start of a worrying precedent where, like, there were a num- after Wings, there were and, and Live and Let Die being quite a popular song. I mean, like, Christ, it's even it, it's like one of the few Bond songs that's still played on the radio now. Like, mm. like the, the radio, um, the local Rose radio. Well. I have to. Well, no, even the, no, the original. Like my my local radio like plays the original quite regularly, too regularly. Mm. And it was like after that, you then got loads of kind of rocky tunes rather than the ballads you got from like the Shirley Basseys and so forth in, in mm. the in the early Connery Bonds. There were very kind of ballady sort of songs. And now after Wings, you got 
the Rocky ones, you got Live and Let Die, Man with Golden Gun with Lulu, you got View to a Kill with Duran Duran. Well, 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 you jumped ahead like four films. Yeah. There yeah, was know, a whole sorry. bunch of singy girly ones in between. What I think there, there were some singy girly ones, which was good. What's but, what, nice balance. What's odd about Live and Let Die is that, you know, um, the film is essentially a black exploitation pick with Bond in it, but mm-hmm. you'd have thought they'd have gone for like a really funky uh, sort of you know, 70s ghetto funk thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which they do have kind of within the Who's soundtrack. The there's cop out when there's danger all about Bond. Exactly. So, <laughs> they, you know, there are kind of little little things in there. Like, the, uh, I think when they go into one of the bars, there's actually the, uh, a, a song by the Blackbirds is playing, which uh, is a mm. kind of a great mm. 70s funk band. But Would that be Fillet of Soul? Yes, the Fillet of Soul. But they kind of went for the complete opposite for the theme tune, and you know I'm a I loathe McCartney with a passion. I can't stand them. Of course you do. So I do quite like the song. I must admit it is very catchy. You can't really dislike it, but it is out of place in the context of the film. Yeah, in in the film which champions pimp mobiles in the way that this does. This is the one where Bond gets called a honky, and he walks into Harlem looking like the most British posh man ever. He's got like you know leather gloves on and like a, a woolen coat. That's that's the trouble. He, like, he, more more so well, than the others was really kind of posh. So stood out as an Englishman. Mm. Like he was just very like, hello. My name. How is, is he not shot at this? Exactly. Like, that's the classic line, isn't it? Isn't it? When he when he first meets the FBI agent and he basically says, "Nice disguise, Bond." You know, yeah, white man in Harlem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good thinking. <laughs> yeah. This, um, uh, this one's also not- notable for the fact that there's no cue. Desmond Llewellyn was doing Folly Foot at the time and did actually take some time off to do the Bond film, but they'd already written him out. Mm-hmm. And so basically, you know, he gets sent his watch and M, M turns up at Bond's house, which is about the only time you ever see Bond's house. It's like, I think it's like one of two. Cause like you see it in um, Doctor No when Sylvia Trench goes there and then you see it in Living mm-hmm. and I think that's it. Oh, that's right. the only so you other do time see you ever right. see Bond's house. I know with, um, in terms of the transition with Live and Let Die, they were very conscious that the last time they'd attempted a transition, a transition with, um, an American Secret Service, obviously with that film, they tried to change everything. So they changed the actors, they changed the style, they changed the tempo. Neil Bond. They changed the, yeah, they changed the, the, Oh, I love that line. Did you hear that in last week of, uh, yeah. the new Bond girl? She's a girl with a difference. This one's got class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not like those, <laughs> those other ones, yeah. In the first yeah. Everything's different but the same, yeah. But when, I know they consciously with Live and Let Die, they wanted um, Connor, uh, sorry, more to just walk into it as if nothing had happened. Mm. So it was like a con- there was like absolute continuity from the, yeah. the Connery film. The Connery I think they took that a little too far in some places. Like so, the, you know, the, it, it wasn't a remake, obviously, but like, there were a lot of nods to Doctor No. And you know, certainly the fact that it goes back to the Bahamas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the which is fine, absolutely fine, because you know, let's face it, the, the Bahamas is where James Bond was born. While Ian Fleming was out there in his holiday home writing these books, that's where he was born. That's why so many of the books what were. Was so his holiday films. home called? Goldeneye. Goldeneye. Yeah. Um, that's why. That's why so many of the films go to the kind of the Bahamas and those sort of um, locations, because obviously you write what you know, and he knew that area well. But mm. the the fact that they brought in Quarrel Junior, without mm. a mention of of who Quarrel was just didn't work. It could have worked well. It could have worked well if, you know, if there was been just a, I worked with his father, etc. Like, you know, it was a bad time. Akin to the kind of, the, the, the references to Tracy Bond every now and then. Like, if they'd handled it with the same sort of sensitivity, the Quarrel reference would have been okay. But it was just a, oh yeah, this is Quarrel Jr. He shares the name. It was a bit cheesy. Yeah. There's a lot of things now that are remake. I mean, they just substitute Snake for a spider and 
you know, there's, you yeah, know, it, it, it smacks of, you know, let's, let's make the first film again. <laughs> yeah. But it didn't work terribly. That, that wasn't a terrible thing. It's no, not no. like a, this is a blatant remake. Not at all. Because no. uh, it's, it's only when you're really looking for the joins. It's, it, yeah. it's, it's using the same framework, basically. Yeah. yeah. David Hedison was this, in this one playing Felix Leiter, the only Felix who returns until Jeffrey Wright. Uh, he turned up later in. Uh, when he gets eaten. Yeah. When he gets half eaten. And, uh, yeah, they, they specifically wanted to go back to one who had, uh, been in, in Bond before so that they could say, hey, remember Felix? Well, I like your dad, James. Yes. I, I quite, I quite liked him as Felix. Like the fact that he's had it twice, you kind of get more used to his version of Felix. And I think, if I remember rightly, after Live and Let Die, you don't see Felix until, uh, Living Daylights, when he's played by a completely yeah. different actor. They just completely drop the Felix character. Even though in a number of the films, particularly like View to a Kill, they have a CIA agent, but it's yeah. not Felix Leiter. It's like, well, what happened to Felix Leiter? And Why, it's baffling. Where was they he? Don't just, they don't just go back to the Dalton Felix Leiter you saw in the last movie. Why the hell would they not do that? Yeah, that hmm. makes no sense at all. You, you, you thought they'd have come up with some sort of continuity, but no. Obviously, he's got the Dalton money penny. Like, bring back the old money penny in that episode. It's like, what's wrong with this picture? (laughs) Here we are in the Roger Moore room uh, for an audience with Roger Moore. The idea was, basically, um, that Roger could come in here and sit where uh, Sue's sitting and just chat about um, all these things. We were surrounded by memorabilia from Roger's glittering career in films and television. There's a little James Bond car there. So Ethel Man flies out. That's nice. Um, There's a golden gun there. That's from the man with the golden gun. Um, the gold, gold ingot there, that's from the film Gold, in which he co-starred with Susanna York. Um, there's, a, there's a saint annual there. I was going to get Roger to read aloud from that with, uh, <laughs> his lovely warm brown voice. Oh, um, jog me memory, in which of Roger's films does it feature three ducks on the wall? Ah, they are not ducks, they are wild geese. From, from, from the film The Wild Geese. With, with Roger Moore playing the cigar-chomping mercenary. Roger Moore! Roger Moore, the quintessential English gentleman. Who's not here. Um, Now, I was going to start... I was going to start... Roger would have loved this. I was going to introduce myself by doing this. This is fantastic. Aha, Mr. Bond! (laughs) I've been expecting you. Which I had. Would have been fantastic. What's that? That's a, that's a nipple. Now, what? it's a nipple. It's, a, it's a, from the man with the golden gun. It's a third nipple. The, the, the Scaramanga had, had three nipples. That's a gold finger. Sean Connery was gold finger. Well done. That was a trick object. Yeah, well Sean, Sean Connery was a better Bond anyway. Well, you know, interesting. You take that position. You know, the Scottish position. I mean, in the whole, you know, in the whole Roger versus Sean debate that's been raging for the last twenty years. I, 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 I say I'm firmly in the Roger camp, you know. I, I believe no one could sort of wear a safari suit with the same degree of casualty. <laughs> it's a complete shambles. You're putting a brave face on it, but he's not here. He's got, you know, you tell sorry, the viewers... Keith, Keith Hunt, let me, stop you, let me stop you in your tracks there, Keith Hunt. You can eat your hat now because, ladies and gentlemen, I can confirm Roger Moore is on the show. He, we're having him on the show right now, live, live by telephone link-up from, <laughs> from the car on a mobile phone. Hello, Roger. Hello, Roger. Hello, Alan. Oh, joy. Oh, Roger Moore. Uh, oh, um, knowing me, Alan Partridge, knowing you, Roger Moore. Aha. 
Roger, no, no, all right, oh, listen, I'm going to cut straight to a key question, Roger, we don't have much time. Um, a hypothetical fist fight takes place between Simon Templer, the Saint, and Roger Moore, James Bond, 007. Who wins? Any thoughts on that, Roger? <laughs> Roger? Roger? <laughs> Roger? Okay, speaking of wrong pictures, Bond does something in this film which baffles me. The deck of lovers. Mm-hmm. He, he, what I can only conclude, he goes into like a, an occult shop and buys 52 decks of tarot cards and then goes back to his hotel room unseen and sorts out all the lovers, makes himself a special deck, yeah. sneaks into Solitaire's house and then goes, pick a card, any card, and I'll shag you. And she picks a lover, and, and then he sort of like drops him down. You're like, oh, they were all lovers. How very clever of him. But then no one actually ever thinks, well, yeah, but how did he do that? And that is that is the work of a creepy, creepy man. It's worse in the book, because in the book, Solitaire is actually 16 years old. Ew. Yeah. And, but, and, and, and yes, it's creepy, but there's an element of me that likes that, not likes it, obviously, but almost approves of it because it, it proves that you look this this is Bond, this is a cold hearted bastard. There were brief yeah. snippets in Moore's film. Moore is known and remembered for the cheesy lines, the oh nothing bothers me, I'm James Bond, the cheap yeah, smiles that but there are certain moments where you know Allah you watch like like Gary pointed out on last week's episode, the um, the knocking the guy off with his tie and um, spy love me. There are certain moments where it's like, you know what I don't remember I wouldn't... Bond knocking a guy off <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Like yeah, pushing off the building, letting the guy fall off the building, and there were moments of there were moments of you know what this guy is a cold hide bastard. I would not mess, and and that was one of them. Like you know, like the fact that he's that manipulative just to get information. You can see the exasperation in his face, like when she's not giving him the information, when she's going on about ah. Oh, the Queen of is no longer the Queen in the High Tower of the Moon or something for that effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I read tarot yeah. professionally, as you can tell. It's, um, and so he's getting frustrated that she's not giving him what she wants. No, and it's, it's, it's a lot. What he wants. It's a lot worse than Alex describes as well, because there's there's 78 cards in a tarot deck, so he yeah. bought <laughs> even more packs than 52. Do you think he charged Universal Exports expenses on that? <laughs> but I mean, how many decks of tarot cards do you think that shop had with exactly? Exactly the well, same. At least 78. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, 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 when you pass the shop, it looked like they were displaying the cards individually. So I assume you just walked in and I'll have, uh, I'll have 78 uh, the lovers' cards, please. Yeah, so we have a special deck for creeps like you. <laughs> um, okay, uh, then this basically gave way to something which I really should talk about when it comes to uh, View to a Kill, but there's so many films in between now and then, and that's something known as The Turtle is Hungry. Now, um, a while ago, uh, Adam and Joe were talking about Bob Dylan singing a song about Alicia Keys. And um, it was like, oh, I'm singing about Alicia Keys when I was in, 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 she was living down the lane. And it's like Bob Dylan today singing about Alicia Keys. And Joe said, God, imagine Bob Dylan getting off with Alicia Keys. It'd be like an old turtle eating a delicious piece of fruit. And that kind of stuck that in my head. <sighs> And then when I saw View to a Kill and hit that scene with Polar Ivanov, I thought, Oh, no, 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 stop it. No. It's just rotten old turtle just sort of going, <laughs> Ah, nah, you're very pretty young thing. The turtle starts to rot in For Your Eyes Only. When you, when you see him in, un, underwater in the, um, the, the scuba suit and he comes up to the beautiful Melina Havelock and the, yeah. the 
skin around his eyes is all bunched up and wrinkled because the the aqua suit is slightly too tight. And it's like, right, right, turtle rotting, time to go. To a degree, Connery was was guilty of this as well. And by the end of his run, Pierce Brosnan was getting a bit turtleish as well. He was, yes. I'm hoping that Daniel Craig doesn't outstay his welcome and become an old turtle himself because it's, it's when Bond starts to sort of, you know, lust after the new bit of skirt mm. that you're like, oh, dude, seriously, act your age. And it's, the, but more, more than any of the rest because he grew oldest playing him. Obviously, actually with the, I would say with the exception of Connery, but he was actually still a little bit younger when he played Bond for his last time. Uh, but yeah, wrinkly old Bond chasing young girls. Now, the, the one exception of this is actually, I think, for your eyes only, when that really young girl, yeah. uh, like, jumps into bed and be- goes, be- be- Come on, is it be- I'm be- not that young. And, uh, and, and Bond goes, I'll buy you an ice cream. Yeah. like, dude, even I wouldn't hit that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna get carted away for this one. Right, so anyway, uh, Live and Let Die, it's got a great soundtrack, it's got that, my favourite bit is actually just before the boat race, um, when uh, he's get, gets stuck on the island full of alligators. Yes. And then it goes. It's got yeah. this great kind of um, uh, this exploitation. Is, this is the great thing about the Morphins. More in terms of soundtracks, the Morphins were great because their music, a lot, a lot of their music was specific to the time. So you know the the sixties the sixties films like with them with Connery, they if you listen to them now they sound very sixties but that's just because of the nature of the sound quality and the number of instruments available to them. If you listen to the nineties Bond films now, they don't you don't listen to them and think oh they're nineties you just think oh that's just a soundtrack that's just how a standard soundtrack. I think Goldeneye does. Goldeneye does. I'm talking I'm talking about the I'm talking about the end like Tomorrow Never Dies and and There Was Not Enough the David Arnold pick like sounds. Those sort of soundtracks could come out in a film today. Whereas the the the, the 70s and 80s more films, particularly Live and Let Die, Spy Love Me, and Fewer Eyes Only, had a very done by Barry yeah. himself. The ones that were not done by Barry himself. The, the, the music was very specific to the time and I very much placed it, look, this is a 70s film with the, uh, the kind of the funky kind of tune of Little and Die, the disco cowbell in um, in the, the Spy Love Me and the the weird sort of 80s disco in For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. I, and I love that and I love those kind of they're, they're kind of snippets of time those soundtracks. It's worth actually talking about the music. John Barry, as we said, did 11 Bond films. Well, yeah, John Barry did all the ones we're not about to mention. Monty Norman did the first one, Doctor No. George Martin did Live and Let Die. He's the uh, guy who produced the Beatles. Marvin Hanslick did uh, Spy Who Loved Me. Bill Conti did For Your Eyes Only. Uh, Michael Kamen, fresh from Die Hard, did License to Kill. And you can really um, tell. Uh, and uh, Eric Serra, of course, did uh, Goldeneye. I mean, he uh, mostly did scoring for all of Luc Besson's films. Very French man, very French. And uh, even actually picked up a mic and crooned the end credits music, oh, which that's is god awful. Fucking painful. That's so song, inappropriate. That song, I, I've got on my iPad because I've got the um, the Goldeneye soundtrack, and every now and then it'll actually skip to it, and it's like, oh. yeah. and I've listened to, I've forced myself to listen to it a couple of times. I think he's got a blocked nose when he's singing. Seriously, listen back to it, and he's got a blocked-out nose. More on that next week. Uh, and then, of course, David Arnold has done everything since uh, uh, Goldeneye, and, uh, yeah, more on that next week, but basically and David Arnold... more on that next week. rocks. Um, there's two more things about Live and Let Die before we proceed to Golden Gun. The shark gun, which is fucking awesome. <laughs> First off, he shoots Whisper... No, he shoots the sofa Whisper sitting on, and it inflates, which is really amusing and then he actually manages to cram it into Kananga's mouth and explode him 
which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and there's also the unnecessarily slow dipping mechanism. Yes. As featured in Austin Powers. <laughs> I do love uh, that. I absolutely uh, love that. The thing I love about that ending is like, like, so far, you know, all the way up to that point, it's been a very kind of sensible, grounded in reality bond, with yeah. the exception of all of the, you know, the gadgets, but the gadgets are still dealing with the drug trade. trade right. Dealing with the drug trade, etc. And then at the very end, it's like, oh, look, we've got a bond style, a bond style villain with an underground base and the most redundant monorail in the series. <laughs> they always have the monorail they, on an island he owns. They, because they had it left over from all the previous sets. Yeah. <laughs> so they just reuse it. But I've got to actually give props to Yafat Koto in this because yeah, yeah. uh, he, he's, he's quite charismatic as Kananga yeah. and the bit where he actually gets out the knife at the end and starts sh- stabbing at Bond and grinning it's really disconcerting he's a yeah, fantastic he's a fantastic yeah. actor I mean everything he's he's been in is you know I think you know he's, he's made some great films yeah, Parker and Alien. Um, I, uh, Midnight Run is probably my, my favourite uh, F.F. Koto film. Have you seen I that Robert De Niro one? Where he's a, he I plays have. an FBI agent. Yeah. Uh, again, it's you know mainly played for laughs, but he's he's so good as a straight man. He's just superb. I do love the um, the the confrontation between Bond and Kananga when Kananga reveals he is Mr. Big. No, he takes off and his face. It just takes off his face because you can see how pissed off <laughs> Kananga slash Big is and how much Bond is pushing him further and further and further without, like, coming across as a little child poking at, you know, a big bully. Um, and just, he's, he's keeping very, very cool. That's one of the few scenes where I think, you know, actually Moore was a really good, really good Bond. Things like, what's like, oh, this is a particularly handsome watch, Mr. Bond. Do you mind if I have a look? And he just sits there, ch- chained to a chair. You'll forgive me if I don't get up. And it's just brilliant, like, just that simple, dry British wit, which isn't the cheesy puns he became no f- known for, but mm. was... You know, it was both amusing and fucking kick-ass. It's like, yeah, you're not taking any shit. Uh, but isn't that the bit where Teehee uh, gets his fingers? I love like, Teehee. Like, Teehee's a yeah. brilliant henchman. As henchmen he, go, he's fantastic. It's pretty good for henchmen, this film, because you've also got uh, Baron Samdi as well, yeah. who's fucking yes. creepy as well. My sister is, to this day, is petrified yeah, of Baron Samdi. my wife is as well. Yeah. But yeah. Live and Let Die is her favourite film. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. Yeah. Well, it, we, the, the we, thing, like, we're scared of. The, the great way, the great way to free help my sister, not that anyone is ever going to meet my sister, but it's just walk up to and say, it's a beautiful, beautiful day. day. <laughs> and then put, <laughs> it's really creepy up to the point where he pulls the little uh, uh, aerial out of his flute and goes, they're, they're, they're here. For the hills. hills. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's technological and creepy. It's brilliant. So, yeah. He's um, sitting yeah. in a grave, for God's sakes. And then he comes out of the grave and Bond shoots him in the head. How did they know, I don't know, that, that he, Bond was going to go for the head at that point? I, I, imagine, I imagine it was probably like they put out a fake one to scare people. In the original, in the first, like, ritualistic sacri- you know, sacrifice at the start of the film, mm. Baron Samdi oh, comes yeah, up and his eyes so open and nothing, he doesn't actually do anything. So that's clearly just the model. When, they got, when he shot the model, it's right, clearly we need to put out the real Baron Sandy so that we keep the locals it, scared. It doesn't have to make any sense because it, he's an illusionist, so, you know. It, well, that's him. Yeah, so you, you just leave it at that, basically. He's the, I don't know, <laughs> the voodoo equivalent of David Copperfield. There's also that really great uh, New Orleans funeral at the beginning where it's like, hmm, whose funeral is this? Yours! Isn't that exactly the same thing that happens in Di- uh, Diamonds Are Forever? No, no, I don't, not word for word the same, but similar. 
Yeah. Kinda. Yeah, you've also got like, to strangely... In Diamonds Are Forever, there's not as much clever dialogue. There's just he gets hit on the head and doesn't notice yeah. two gay people coming up behind yeah, him. That opening scene, I've always had a bit of a problem with it because they, they've got like a... The, the guy must be full of some sort of magnetic material because they just drop okay. the coffin over the top of him and pick him up. And then you just pick it up and oh, just, yeah. it's gone. So he's got lots just... of spikes or he's got lots of... Uh, plate steel in his body but like, that's like a run up to the fact that this film's going to deal with like magic tricks yeah, and illusions yeah, and things indeed. like that nothing you see is what it seems well let's move on to Golden Gun because yeah. we're never going to go otherwise okay so I, I like living that die i got a soft spot for it uh, Man with the Golden Gun This is seen by so many people as a really low point in the series. Um, uh, And it got terrible, terrible critical uh, reviews. And it it just got panned. And then there was three years between this and Spy Who Loved Me. And it it looked like the series might actually be shit-canned at that point because um, people just didn't like it. And there were people people saying, maybe Bond has had his day. Maybe this is enough. So so what was it that bugged people so much? Three words for me. (laughs) J.W. Pepper. No, that's not the reason. Why? <laughs> why was he back? No, I'm just saying that's my reason. That's why well, one of my reasons. Why bring him back? The problem with the man... I mean, when I was a kid, uh, I, the man from, with the gold gun used to be one of my favourites, actually. Um, but, but then, sort of as you grow older, you realise just how bad it is. Um, mm. And it's and it has all the right ingredients, OK? So as a really good villain, with really a good really, villain. really good actor... I will agree. With better writing, Scaramanga could have been freaking yeah. awesome. If if that was remade well, yeah. that could be awesome. Indeed, because it's supposed to be an, you know an absolute rivalry between these two that's you know been going on for many years, and you know and, and you've got the kind of charismatic henchman in in Nicknack. Uh, we'll skip over. Oh, no, no, we'll skip over. Oh, swear, Mr. We'll skip Nick, over. Nicknack annoyed me. Nicknack. You say Nicknack. All I hear is. All I hear in my head is you big bully. Let me go. It's yeah, like, yeah, but that's end, more. Like, that's more about. What what they do with the character rather than yeah, the character itself. True. So that's the concept true. of having a, 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 a dwarven person or whatever the politically correct saying is, um, pl- a, little a little person playing the henchman is really good because often that doesn't happen. But then they they mm. they then sort of descend into the usual stereotypes. But you know, putting him in a suitcase and chucking him over the side of a bun. Yeah. But it just, it's impossible the, not to think about. Apart from Britt Eklund, who is bit. hopeless. The, she is rubbish. The, the, oh, was, on just, paper, it looks like it's a winner, but the the problem they have with it is that they kind of quite a few of the Bond films do this. They kind of pick up on something of something of the day, and then they try to blend it into the plot. So this was made during the fuel crisis of the early seventies, you know, when petrol mm. stations run dry. And so they they tried to sort of bring in a slightly political edge to it, and all they ended up with is this kind of fudgy mess of a story, which doesn't really make a great deal of sense why would this assassin this this you know who who this man who enjoys killing people and making his money why would he bother to 
steal the solar plex and do I mean, it. He's, he's it already, makes no sense whatsoever. He already goes through like why how he's made like such a good living out of million pound contracts. Yeah, he can, you know, a million pound a contract I can afford to live. It ends up being two films that are completely different. So it ends yeah. up being a film about about Scaramanga and Bond, which is good, and a film about trying to retrieve a solar plex, which makes no sense whatsoever. And that's you, the reason why. It was why just a film about assassinations. So if it was a film just about assassinations, it would have been, they would have given it quite a gritty edge, mm. which you could have done with. Unfortunately, I think you find most people, you know, when they talk about this film, the reason they don't like it is they find it boring. I mean, it, it is mm. in places, you sort of watch it and thinking, well, why am I doing this? What's going on again? Oh, he's getting in a boat. Okay. You know, you kind of go with it, but it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's, we have to have a kung fu fight because, you know, uh, that was the, 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 the thing of the day, you know, is making kung fu films. So let's stick that in there as well. well the, the, the boat Two girls was, doing Chinese kung fu. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, they're the best karate in, masters in, in the In schoolgirl style outfits. Yeah. And beating up old dojo of, uh, <laughs> yeah, experience. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the whole point of the, the boat chase, the boat chase was blatantly, the boat chase went down really well and let it die. Let's put one in somewhere. And the only reason he gets into a boat is because they shut the car and drive off without him, which is just, it's silly. They take, they took the comedy too far and they made it silly in this film. The mm. one, there's, there's two redeeming things for it, other than, yeah, one is Chris Lee, who's fantastic in it. Absolutely. The other is, uh, in my, on my opinion, yeah, it's the most fantastic stunt ever, just yeah. always. The, and, they, and they did that in one take, mm-hmm. and they knew if they didn't make it, the stunt driver was dead, basically. <laughs> so, uh, and I know that... Don't they undercut it with a stupid fucking slide whistle? Oh, no, yeah, I believe there is a, a version you can get with that removed, isn't there? Um, is there? The Ultimate Edition? Uh, I can't I remember need to now. find this. Yeah, I, I believe you can this. get a re-edited copy with the slide whistle bit removed. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Ever heard of Evil Knievel? Even the director said, what the fuck was I doing in retrospect on that? Yeah crazy yeah. but uh yeah other than that no real redeeming features and nothing oh and also, pickles, really. also the song is disgusting i <laughs> i i'm gonna play I, I played it at the beginning but i'm just gonna play some of the choicest lines here Love is required whenever he's hired comes just before the kill no one can catch him no hitman can match him for his million dollar skill one golden shot Is Dom Black? The, did you write that one? I don't know, but it wasn't Lulu. No, oh no, it would be Lulu. No. I mean, it, there's there's Saucy, and then the, there's Dublob Tundra, and then there's Mrs. Slocum's Pussy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, yeah, I actually ha- I kind of like the Man with the Golden Gun the song purely because it's filth, <laughs> but um, I, I think it may have rubbed people up the wrong way, so to speak. Uh, like, like Gary says, there were so many elements of this film that would have made it such a great film, but mm. it just let itself down. Like, even things like, what's it like, the, 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 the solar plant at the end was blatantly, 
we need to build a big set at the end. Yeah, it made no sense. There was no need for that big set. Like, the the rest of his island would have been fine. The jewel on the island would have been fine. There was no need for the big solar plant. That was blatantly just that we have something that can blow up. It smacks of a film where they had this basic concept of, you know, a Bond's arch enemy. And then they, then they had to do, they did like a, a retreatment of the story and they got another, another writer in to add in this kind of, you know, a yeah, contemporary yeah, political angle to it, which then That would explain why it feels like a film of two halves. It, it does. It feels yeah. like two different films blended together. And one film makes no sense at all and the other film is quite interesting, but. Smacks of Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm all, there's plenty of films that fall into that. I mean, there's other Bond movies that fall into that trap as well. Yeah. So. Okay, well, let's move on from it because it was grim. So then after three years away and they came back with Spy Who Loved Me, I mean, talk about whacking it out of the park when everyone was down on the series. Yeah. <laughs> film. It began in forest in Germany. It's Austria! Austria! <laughs> it's the one where the laser beam goes up his jaw. Joel Finger! <laughs> what's the one with the, the, with the volcano and it splits up and a big rocket comes out and there's all chinkies jumping jump dude. It's not a uh, thunderbolt. No, 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 st- no stop yeah. getting Bond wrong! <laughs> I'll tell you about the spy love me. All do that with your fingers round your eye. I'm Roger Moore. Bang! Blood dribbles down. We're on a submarine. Two sailors sit down and have a game of chess. And the cups start wobbling, and then a man who used to be in the Eden line comes in and goes, Why are the cups wobbling? What's going on? And then he... Yeah, you can stop doing that now. And then he pulls down the periscope thing, looks through it and goes, Oh my God, the submarine's being eaten by a giant tanker. And then we cut to Moscow. And there's a man there, and he's Russian, he's got eyebrows, you know. And he's on the phone going, What, a whole submarine? You're joking! I'm going to have to tell some other Russians. See ya! Right, and, then, and then it cuts to James, Roger Moore, and uh, yes, he's with a lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's necking with her. Right, and he goes, I've got to go, love. Something's come up. <laughs> he, uh, yeah. he means his cock. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, then he, he, he puts on his underpants and his ski suit, and he gets on his skis and he starts skiing. And he's being chased by these Russian shits in black jumpsuits with lemon piping. And, uh, and he's just skiing along like that, and, and they start shooting at him, and he goes, Right, I've had enough of that, just stop it! And he, and he turns around with his gun, and then he does a backward somersault off this ramp, and he, he lands on his feet. Uh, I'm not sure why, but he's not showing off. And, and then he, and he goes over a cliff, and he's falling, and you think, Oh, God, James Bond's going to die! He's going to die! But then, at the last minute... He pulls a ripcord, right, and a, a parachute comes out, and it's got a union jack on it. Michael! End of the beginning. The end of the beginning goes like this: glang, glang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang, glang, a lang, lang, a lang, a lang. Nobody does it better. And I'm a naked woman in silhouette with a gun, spinning round. Makes me feel sad for the rest. Nobody does it. Oh, bit of nipple. White as good as you, baby. You're the best. Da, 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 da. And now, really big bounce right over, and I land on my feet. Da, 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 da. I wasn't looking. <laughs> somehow you found me. Oh, uh, bit of bush. Uh, <laughs> I tried to hide from your love life, and a woman swinging on a luger, a giant luger. Ooh, look at that. Uh, like heaven above me, and now another naked woman walking along the top of a gun. Completely Billy Bollocks. That's why you love me. Just keeping all my secrets safe tonight. And then one more big swing from a woman. Legs go right apart. Oh, what was that? Too late. <laughs> Nobody does it half as good as you. Baby, you're the best. 
Yeah, so, uh, do you want to hear some more? I personally don't think it's that fantastic uh, uh, film. It's a great more film. As a film, not so much, but as a, as a Bond film and, and for revivifying the franchise and actually making sure that it carried on at a time when otherwise it might... If another golden gun might have sunk it for good. Yeah. It was key. I mean, the, the main thing with The Spy Love Me is they turned everything up to 11, basically. So yeah. they went for big sets, big action set pieces... Uh, you know, basically the opposite of what they did with the Golden Gun, and and really the story plays second fiddle to to to, to the the kind of the mould they then use for a lot of future Bond films, which is basically lots of set pieces with a bit of sort of wandering around between countries in between. You know, yeah. um, I, I, the strength of the Spy Love Me, I think, is 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 in, uh, Barbara Back who, again. It's uh, you know, Agent Triple X, one of the best. I think one of the best. Uh, Definitely. I want to call her a Bond girl, really, because she's a she's an equivalent. But yeah, the Bond Bond girl kind of undersells her, isn't it? It does. It's, yeah. It's, she was the first one where they tried she's to do more the like whole. Lynn. Yeah. She was the first one where they did the whole a girl to match Bond, and they tried they've tried doing it since. They tried doing it what with with Waylin, and you know they've made a big deal about Halle Berry being oh a you know, girl to match yeah. Bond, and it just it just doesn't work as well as it did with Barbara Back. No, mm. no, and obviously it's the first film with Jaws in, um, and Jaws just, yeah. it was just such a fantastic, yeah, such a fantastic screen presence, you know, uh, mm. uh, uh, and it was, Stromberg was still quite a good villain in terms oh, of the yeah, diabolical, yeah. quite blatantly loopy villain. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and again, you know, stellar actor really, but it, mm. it is way over the top. I mean, the huge battle scene in the, in the, in the giant tanker, and mm. then you've got yet another huge, great big, uh, you know, space station under the sea type thing to go to. So yeah. it was just like, <laughs> they just threw everything at it basically. Alex, you've been doing a lot of researching. Like, did I read correctly that originally this film was planned to be a Spectre film, but they, there was a, there was an issue with the rights to the Blofeld yeah. character. Yeah, okay. Um, yes, uh, short of it is that uh, Blofeld was supposed to be the villain in this, and they changed him for Stromberg because the, uh, they were ri- the, the rights to the character of Blofeld were mm. retained by Kevin McClory, who at that point was going through a legal battle. Now, you mentioned last uh, week, Jay, <laughs> last week, four months ago, that the guy that Bond kills at the beginning of For Your Eyes Only isn't Blofeld. Yeah, I actually, I, I, re- I read up on that afterwards, so yeah, yeah carry on. <clears throat> Technically, he's not named as Blofeld, but he's not not named as Blofeld. It was a way for the, uh, the, the, the writers of the film to say, right, remember that Blofeld guy? Right, we chucked him down a chimney, <laughs> dead. dead. Yeah. We don't need your fucking Blofeld. And it was like two fingers up at Kevin McClory, who at the time was going through a serious litigation suit with that, them. That was been going on for years. That was just pointless. Like, like Blo- Blofeld hadn't been seen since Diamonds Are Forever. It was, sending, it was not missed. It was, was sent, not missed. Sending a message. It was basically saying... As Alex yeah. said, this is like we don't, you know, we 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 decide when we need this guy or not, and yeah. we're going to get rid of him now. It smacks of the uh, Poochie episode of The Simpsons, yes. where it's like <laughs> Poochie's dead. We don't need this guy; he sucks. <laughs> but I, I, so, I think yeah. if there hadn't been a rights battle, I think this would have worked. Like Spider Love Me would have worked brilliantly as a Spectre film. It felt very reminiscent of Thunderball, and you are you only live twice in terms of the scope of it. But Stromberg was a great villain, and um, to replace that. This is from uh, Wikipedia. The storyline involves a reclusive megalomaniac named Stromberg who plans to destroy the world and create a new civilization under the sea. That's your solution to everything. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to happen. Not with that attitude. So, yeah, Jaws himself was actually named after the shark uh, from the 75 film, which Steven Spielberg was originally considered to direct. 
this film. Oh right. Okay. But he was wrapping up Jaws and said he, he couldn't be he couldn't yeah. commit to the, uh, the the shooting schedule. Another little uh, note is that there was a, a hotel under construction in the uh, film. In what was it? The Bahamas, the Caribbean. Uh, uh, Sardinia. Yeah, Mediterranean. Which featured in a later Bond film. Did it? Which one? Casino Royale. No way. Yes, way. The one that Daniel Craig runs and charges and jumps and skips and hops around with Sebastian Foucault is the self-same, dilapidated, under construction, still not finished yet, never going to be finished, hotel as from The Spy Who Loved Me. No way. Okay. True. True. Brilliant. Also, uh, Spy Who Loved Me has another very, very striking feature to it, which I don't think any of us could forget, especially as kids. The car. A car. Awesome car. Totally fucking awesome car. It was uh, apparently the uh, the white the Lotus Esprit had only just been uh, developed, and there were two in the world, and they had to borrow one of them. And then they made four similar model type ones to uh, to actually. I think they borrowed it from. Mr. Lotus, the guy who owns Lotus, or something like that. Colin um, Chapman. That's the one. And uh, yeah, so that was the one for driving around. Then they made four ones for, for the various submarine versions of the Lotus, including a fully functional submersible Lotus. So a, a <laughs> long, long time ago, a good couple of years ago, um, Neil Taylor used to run a so well, no, he's, he's brought it back now, KDS. When KDS originally ran, he did a couple of um, episodes dedicated to Bond, and he taught me this fact. The scene where the Lotus drives out of the sea and onto the beach, mm-hmm. if you watch it closely, they actually reversed the car into the water. Yeah. Which I'd never picked up on until Neil told me. No, that dog walking backwards ruined the shop. <laughs> oh, I haven't noticed that. I have not noticed the dog walking backwards. No, no, I made that up, but it okay. would have been awesome. That would have been, been great. What I love is, like, a completely watertight car, and yet he drops a fish out the window as he gets back onto the beach. Yeah, but it's... Yeah. Yes, that's... Yeah, that's ridiculous, but... Guy glances at his drink so, and chucks it away, and yeah. he's like... Whoa. I'll say, there would, there would be water in it, because submersibles have to suck water in and spit mm. it out, so it would be oozing out water as it came out, but... Yeah. Question. I've, I haven't seen this for several months. Was there a... It, these are beginning to blend into one another now. Was there like a femme fatale in the helicopter yes. that Bond... Yes. yes. Was Stromberg's assistant, yeah. Uh, Just a little bit of a reference to Volp there. She, she was played by a model, and I can't remember what her name yeah. was. And she, she literally just turns up, looks good in a bikini, and then... She picks out. him up and takes him out to see Stromberg, doesn't she, when, they, when yeah. they're in... They're, uh, they're using their aliases. Yes. No. That was it, Yes. And then she gives Bond yeah. a, a wink when she tries to blow him off the road with the helicopter. Yeah, yeah. and then he blows her up using his special car. That's right. We obviously, which... we obviously can't talk about the spy love me without speaking um, talking about another iconic Bond moment. Oh, of course, the beginning. Just brilliant, like, you know, like a good ski chase at the start and jumping off a cliff. And you. Brilliant music. That's blatantly been written as a kind of a just a kind of disco tune, and they've weaved the Bond theme into it every now and then. And mm. then just jumps off a cliff, absolute silence. You think, how the hell is he going to get out of this one? Oh my god, James Bond's going to die. Hold on, isn't this the one with the Beach Boys music? No, no that's later. No, that's later. That's when they we, fucked we, it up. Up the Beach Boys later. This is when they got it right. This is, yeah, exactly. Which was the Beach Boys one then? That was Beauty Kill. Of course, yes. Sorry, yep, got it now. Yeah, out comes the um, the 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 parachute, which obviously has the texture of the Union Jack in a kind of I'm British, British kind of way. Standing ovation. This is this is the one with the uh, submarine iceberg, isn't it? 
No, that's Fugitive. Actually, took us all. Are they blending into one now? My God. <laughs> they are. That's, but that's what they wanted. They that's wanted you to not be able to tell one from the other. They wanted you to feel that like you were having Oh, hold a good on. This is the one, well, yeah, where he, he, yeah, he shoots the guy as he's being chased and it's, um, yeah. It's her girlfriend, yeah. With yeah. his, yeah. With you now. Got it now. Ah, uh, yes. It's her boyfriend. Yeah. 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 Okay, so. Yeah, we've, we've done this kind of in reverse, and that's a brilliant beginning to the spy. Who loved me. It's a brilliant and, beginning, and, and, and the trouble is they tried they tried too hard to re- recreate that a couple of times. Where the only one, the the Union Jack hot air balloon in Octopussy. Mm. Now, There's a Union Jack on the inside of the, uh, uh, the submarine. The submarine, hatch. yeah, absolutely. Like the whole, it goes back to what's it like last time when we were discussing this, and we said like, yeah, like, James Bond is a shit spy. Absolutely, he's a shit spy. <laughs> Do not give away. Who you're working with. Don't tell him, well, yeah. The fact the whole world knows who he is, kind of. Exactly. Regardless of whether or not they get your identity, you do not let let them know who you are working for. And a big fucking Union Jack is something of a giveaway. One correction there, though. He's never referred to as a spy. No. He's an agent, which is different. Yeah. A spy would be undercover. An agent would not necessarily be undercover. Well, the, 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 the title, The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, but that's her. Okay, yes, fair point. Yeah. Fair point. Hang on, I thought that was from her perspective, that song. It is, yeah, no, it's written from her perspective, yeah, so, oh, yeah, so it is referring to part. The part. song might be. <laughs> I thought, yeah, the, it's the, a great yeah, song. You're right, the,
the, the film is referring to her being the spy yeah. that loved him. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway. Well, completely different from the book as well. Like, just to go on the book briefly, the, the book was, um, it was, it was bizarre. It's, um, it was really kind of tame for a Bond book. It was Bond is passing through an area on his way to another mission, stays at a motel. The woman who runs the motel, whose sister was raped and her boyfriend doesn't like her and she's in financial debt, is basically in trouble and the, you know, she owes money to people and, uh, Keep it light. Sorry? <laughs> Keep it light. Yeah. You're depressing the audience Sorry. with the reality. But, but, and, and, you know, gangsters turn up to the hotel and basically terrorise it. It's, it's written very much like a horror film in that it all takes place over one night. And they're running from different parts of the motel and hiding and so forth. And he basically, because he was staying there, takes out all of the um, the gangsters. Is basically the gist of the book. No that sounds things. way better than most of the more Bond films. Exactly, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. One, one last thing I'd say about um, Spy Who Loved Me, the one, the one thing that always kind of strikes me out as weird, is um, the submarine captain, the US submarine captain who uh, Bond teams up with later, uh-huh. is played by Shane Rimmer. And that is disconcerting for me for two reasons. First of all, his name is Rimmer, which is any, any Red Dwarf fan will know is not a good start. Second mm-hmm. of all, he played Scott from Thunderbirds. So every now and then, he says a very dramatic line, and you can just picture a Thunderbirds puppet. On that note, Jerry Anderson wrote the preliminary script for this. No way! H- hence the submarine car. I think the special effects have a whiff of Jerry Anderson they do, There's a well. whiff of Jerry Anderson about them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that didn't surprise me in the it's least. If Jerry Anderson directed a Bond film, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Seriously. It would just be fun. all models. <laughs> that's, that's fine. Oh, man! That, Okay, right. For for what roughly the version, the Jerry Anderson version of Bond, look no further than Team America World Police. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I one more thing before the Spy Who Loved Me is probably the song that has been used over the most montages of Bond films, where they sort of like try and make you get all misty eyed over this sort of like you know Sean Connery turning and winking at the camera and going, nobody does it better. Of course, it's from her point of view. And it's talking about Bond just doing it so fucking good. And uh, there is why do you have to be so good? Well, I'll tell you, uh, it, luck. Yeah. James Bond is imbued with luck, a, a superhuman level of luck. You know, every time, so every time a Bond film comes out, there's a new documentary on TV talking about. Uh, not so much these days. These days they're a bit more sort of serious and craggy. But um, you know, throughout the 90s, there were a lot of those sort of you know Bond girls are forever style um, oh, documentaries yeah. where they'd get you all you know thinking about all the old films that have come and that, gone. That, and, that documentary was such an illusion shattery. You think like all these guys who've harboured fantasies about all these women, and then they show those women as they are now, wrinkled, old, and crusty. far beyond their prime. Female turtles are hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, right, 1979, Moonraker. Where are you? Why do you hide? Shirley Bassey returning, but this seems out of step because it's like she was, you know, very much of the Connery era, and suddenly you've got her singing this song kind of as a throwback to then, and uh, it does have, it feels a bit like... It's not a best one, but it is still a good Bassey song. 
very, very difficult to get Moonraker into a song title. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if, if you listen to the lyrics, it sounds kind of you know really badly shoehorned in. You know. Mm. It, for me, the, the, this song is exemplary of the fact that these late 70s, early 80s Bonds, uh, specifically the Moore ones, actually got really quite comfortable. They were like a warm, snug set of slippers, apart from For Your Eyes Only, which was more realistic and gritty. Um, they they kind of had a look, everyone come along and see a Bond film, no one that you know or care about is going to die horribly, and, you know, you won't go home empty-handed. And it's like, you know... You can trust Roger Moore. He's, you know, he's got his like raised eyebrow. There'll be some humour, some silliness. There's no sense of danger. And my God, Moonraker manages to completely dispense with any sense of danger. And I'm going to sp- place that blame squarely on the uh, shapely shoulders of Miss Holly Goodhead. Because um, watching it the other day, first half of Moonraker is actually quite good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's. Uh, someone compared it to Die Another Day, and the, the, the first half is kind of tight. And I sort could of, not agree more. That's exactly where I was going to go yeah, with it. It's, it's, yeah. another, it's another one where it's two films in one, where they've, yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they, they start off with one concept, and then, oh no, Star Wars is out, and there's space shuttles, we need to go into space. Yeah, and it just falls apart, and yeah. at the end it's ridiculous. Uh, but specifically it's Goodhead's reaction, or lack of reaction to everything. She's like, oh god. James, those those warheads are going to explode and shower the earth with spores. We oh, really oh no, James, time. James, don't don't fall James, off a, no. a cable car. Oh, no. No, oh God, oh, they, just hold on to me. And she's 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 very serious. Yeah. And she's very sort of she's not screeching like that poor bint out of uh, View to a Kill. Don't get started on her. I'm gonna start it on her. Oh. Hold on. Um, but um, so she, she's actually quite. Uh, she's she's. Very nice, but at the same time, she's not acting at all like they're in any kind of danger. No. She's so calm about it all that you're like, oh, they're not in danger. It's just a film. And the trouble is, <laughs> was that, isn't she, she, it turns out she's a CIA agent, and you, yeah. you kind of think like maybe they're trying to reca- reclaim the kind of the Barbara Back thing, but again, yes. it doesn't work. Uh, it's kind of just gone down the same route. Speaking of uh, Bond girls, I think the, I can't remember her name now, but the the girl who Bond befriends or, you know, to, who gains her mm. trust and uh, basically meets yes. a horrible death. Camille. Very dark. Camille? Yeah, Camille. I, I tell you what, it reminded me of The Omen. It's just so sort of dark and nasty. I have to look away every time that comes on because mm. it's just, it, the, the way it's shot and the way it's uh, presented yeah. is just... Nasty, it's almost sadistic. It is no, never any sense that she's going to get away. No. It's like just, just what she's going to get killed by these dogs. Yeah, eaten alive. Yeah, just yeah. horrible. Yeah, horrible, yeah. and uh, totally out of step with all the other b- more bits apart from that really rather wicked bit when he's like, "You missed, did I?" <laughs> <laughs> that, that, is, that is the one, that is the cheesiest bit of um, of more punish, but I absolutely love that bit. Yeah. No. Um, it's also important to note that this film is 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 not even a sh- a, the least bit ashamed to be a, a basically a remake of The Spy Who Loved Me in space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's doing the same formula exactly. again, give it a bit of a Star Wars remix, uh, uh, unabashedly. And the worst thing is, people lapped it up. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Man with the Golden Gun was one of the lowest um, uh, box offices for a Bond film. Moonmaker is one of the highest box offices for a Bond film. It doesn't make any fucking sense. I think, I, I think it's the spectacle, good. though, isn't it? Because these were at, these, at the time, these were like the big special effects films. So and, and so, so many people will have heard that Spy Love Me was great, so they will all rush to see the well, next Bond film. There was a lot. Uh, again, unfortunately, I can remember it, but there was there was a lot of um, uh, you know a lot of hype around Moonraker because it was you know Bond in space and it's about space battles yeah. and lasers and you know it just it just had so much hype and momentum behind it. Mm. 
It was 79, so everyone was still watching Star Wars in the cinema yeah. at this point. I remember, because uh, I, I would have been too young to see it in the cinema, but I can remember the first time it was shown on television. I can remember mm. watching it on a 14-inch TV when I was about 12. I think. Hang, on. Hang on. How old were you in 79? I would have been... Uh, I'd have been seven or eight. Then you weren't too young to watch in the cinema. I saw View to a Kill when I was four. Yeah, I was too young to to, <laughs> to get it. Yeah, too young to get it. Yeah, but um, I remember it coming out, and I remember my uh, my father and uh, stepmother going to see it at the cinema. Um, then there's the velocity machine. One of the really good bits of this film, where Moore gets stuck in this the, the thing that they train astronauts on to see if they can black out at seven Gs or something like that. When he gets out. Well, it looks, I don't know if they actually genuinely stuck Roger Moore in one of those machines, because his face is like warping and mutating, yeah. and the, the turtle is squishy, yeah. and then when he gets out, he seems genuinely shaken. When, when, you, when you see like the bit when he's actually in the machine, and you see you know the G-force having its effect on his skin, that's the turtle rotting right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the turtle began to rot. I wonder if they actually put him in the machine. Um, I think that did because it. How do you simulate that back yeah. in seventeen? Th- and they must have done. They must have put. Him and in it must be. It must be anything. It like they sped it. They sped it up to make it look faster. They could have done it. In a, they could have done it in a um, wind tunnel because that has the same effect. But yeah. more specifically, but no, his hair wasn't blowing back. That's true. Why, why do you, does his hair ever move? No, <laughs> it's been glued on. More specifically, uh, Roger Moore when he gets out is genuinely shaken. Yeah. He's not that good an actor. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, he's like, uh, like she, she, you know, he gets out of it with his like special cufflink thing, and then she's like, oh, oh I don't know, must have accidentally pressed a button, just like that bit in Thunderball. And um, yes. uh, no, it's the, it's the it's the sly Chinaman who's uh, been uh, you know meddling with the controls, and then you know ends up fighting him later on. It's like, don't oh, trust the sly Chinaman. This the weird kind of colonial <laughs> sensibility that Roger Moore kind of brought with him. But he, like he's he's aghast. His hair's all skew with. His face is all melty. He's sweating like a motherfucker. It's it's just not the least bit glamorous, and it's it's it's, it's a far cry from his uh, like clipped British brushed and washed uh, sensibilities in Living at Die. Speaking of the Sly Chinaman, the the Sly Chinaman is is Chang is thrown out of a window in Venice. You know, very yep. nice fight scene. Good, he dies, etc. I think he's actually Japanese because he was doing kendo yeah. later okay. on. But... Japanese. Like, the Chang is thrown out of a window and dies, mm. and, as as henchmen have to do. And you know, but it's like a Fu Manchu reference. He's a bit of a naff henchman because he only makes it halfway through the film. Drax is then seen calling up and talking about getting a replacement for Chang. Who can you recommend? Yes, he sounds ideal. And then you see George getting on a plane. Is that a henchman hotline? Yeah, yeah. Is that is there like a, just a universal hotline for villains to call up and say, look? I need a henchman. He needs to have some sort of deformity. Um, he says on the phone, doesn't he? Or you can get him. Yes, he'll be just right or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it must be an agency or something. Who was saying that? Just, well, he's like he's eight feet tall. He has metal teeth. Yes, <laughs> yes. he'll do fuck. Oh, I've got I've got just the boy for you. He's a, he's a very tall bloke. He's uh, got this lovely you know metal teeth thing going on. Uh, he, he comes very highly recommended. Uh, his former employer. Uh, he outlived his former employer, so that's that's good on him. Uh, he's he got bit his a shark. Um, he bit yes. a shark. He bit a shark. He's, you want a shark bit? He can bite a shark for you. Absolutely. I hope you don't keep sharks because you'll bite them. <laughs> I just I want that person on the other end of the phone to be like that. <sighs> Thank you, James. You're quite welcome. There's that bit at the beginning. We keep doing this in the order. The parachute jump's actually really, really good. The bit where uh, Bond like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kicks a guy out of a plane and then jumps after, like, I don't know, falls out or jumps after him without a parachute, chases after him, nicks his parachute, and then, then, 
they're like, that's not good enough. Then Jaws turns up as well. They have an aerial battle and Bond escapes him. But Jaws gets away without a parachute and then falls into a circus tent. Yeah, and then the whole thing hearts. kind of falls flat. And yeah. it's got some of us. It's almost that, like a, that, that scene pretty much sums up the entire film. It starts really well, really exciting, yeah. really dangerous. And, and then, then they throw in the comedy or the yeah. silliness and they go over the top and they take it too far. Even when Jaws is first introduced, you know, when it's Mardi Gras in, in, in Brazil, yeah. that, that's really good. Scary he's, he's, yeah, he's scary as hell. You can see why people are terrified of him. Apparently yeah. the director of uh, Spy Lummy got uh, repeated fan mail from Kiddy saying, why is Jaws a baddie? Why can't he be a goodie? And that's why they made him be oh, a goodie. Oh, God. So, don't so listen. How do you, kids, how do you, kids don't dick about narrative. How do you explain Dolly? Yeah, she's there to do just that, isn't she? She's to, there to, to soften, him, soften the, the uber villain. Yeah. Yeah, this, this, oh, is that this, the, the pigtail girl? Yeah, yeah the, the weird pigtail, the, the shockingly buxom Swede with the, well, uh, with the weird... Well, to us. Yes. Oh. <laughs> the waving, oh. at, uh, waving at Bond from the, from the ruins of a dilapidated space station that's about to blow up. If they'd actually been blown up, that would have been kind of a bittersweet ending, but they yeah. fucking survived. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Oh dear. Um, okay, right, so Moonraker, not the yeah, best, but it's a good one. Best. of the Moors, yeah, and I would say it's probably in the top four or five of all the Bond films, which is kind of controversial because not everyone agrees, but it's no. um, the one, th- the ones I really like are like On oh, no, a Secret Service and this one and yeah, and Casino Royale they all have something in common in that they have a very strong narrative mm. which is normally driven by one particular thing, so uh, in this film it's all about revenge, so it's the revenge of is it Melina? Yeah, Melina Hamlet. Yeah, which is, as I said last week, uh, is the word honey in Greek. Ah, well, yeah, that that makes sense, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's, 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 you know, fundamentally it's about her seeking revenge, and it's about, you know, him kind of trying to rein that in, but going along for the ride. But it's also this this kind of uh, 
uh, sort of duopoly rivalry between the Topol character and the Julian uh, Julian Glover, Ju- yeah, yeah, Julian Glover character, um, which again, it's you know these are really well drawn characters for Shades. Normally the villains are just like right, I want world domination. You don't really understand why, but with both uh, Julian Glover and uh, Topol, they actually try to put in some kind of backstory about. You know, uh, post post uh, World War Two betrayal and uh, former friends falling out, and it all being about corruption and, and money, and it and it's all sort of interwoven with a realistic plot, um, because these devices, these a, a, you know the ATAC, these these types of devices were were and are used. You know, this is the sort of thing that during the Cold War that each side was trying to get their hands on. It's a, the Enigma machine of its day. So it had all of the, I think it had all of the right elements for a really good. Bond film, and it, and I also feel it has, well, two other things. It was the first of the films that really went to town with the Remy Martin stunts, and yeah. it was also one of the few films brave enough to go for an ending that actually fits the rest of the film. See, we're just mm. talking about Moonraker, as the, and, and the Spy Love Me, and in fact, you can choose loads of Bond films, and you know, Live and Let Die, all have a, an ending which doesn't match the tone of the film, but this one had an ending that was spot on. For what went before it within the film. But yeah, there you go. It, it didn't. It didn't go over the top. It was a. It was a uh, ambush at a you know, a mountaintop abbey. Yeah. And it was all very gritty and realistic <laughs> and down to earth. And there were no armies of you know tracksuit clad. henchmen. <laughs> yeah. Shell suits. Yes. Shell suits. You've got a lot of those shell suits. But um, I think the, the the problem with blue for the goodies, red for the baddies. The problem with the critical uh, review of it, and if you look, I've, I've just been skim reading actually some of the reviews from the time. They're all moaning that after the previous two films, it's boring because there's no big set pieces. But that's the it whole was, point. It was better for it. It, was <laughs> it much is much better. better for it. it is much better for it. It is a it is a proper film, unlike the last two, which were basically comic books put on screen, you know. So it, it would have worked like wasn't it? like if, if it wasn't a Bond film, it would have worked well as a spy film. Yes. As it you know, and, yes. and, that, and that, that's a good thing. You know, if, if all... it's got if it's got the basic fundamentals of a good film and then you and but it's been a, it's been written as a good Bond there film. There are moments of cheese in it, obviously, because there has obviously, to be. Yeah. But uh, I think the underwater photography won an award as well, because there's some fantastic underwater. Uh, oh well, the, the the ruins and all that is beautiful. And also the the big fight scene with the the two the two, the, uh, the guy in the, the kind of robo suit, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they really kind of um, push the envelope, if you like, of what they could do with sort of the uh, underwater scene. So yeah, it's. Mm. Yeah, it looks it looks gorgeous. I think the whole thing is shot beautifully. If everything feels, you know, when they're in the the, the in Greece and in the kind of uh, sunny climbs, it really has a richness to it, which a lot of the previous films have lacked. I think it's like the cinematography. It was nice spot. that it was. It's nice as well that it didn't it didn't get lost in the globe trotting. It was all around no, Greece and it's, it's all around and Greece and yeah. Central Europe. Yeah, which yeah. is very very similar to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is probably why I really also like kind it. Of, also, um, from Russia with Love. Like the the whole ATAC MacGuffin reminded me of the, the similar. Letter. Yes, there's the yeah. same thing again. Um, yeah, but they're obviously they're bringing it from Turkey back to yeah. Britain. But yeah, similar. Type but it, thing. It's it's still it's still but, two sides chasing after a machine. Like the, the 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 previous films that we've talked about have all kind of followed the Thunderball, you only live twice formula. Yeah. This one followed the 
from Russia with Love yeah, Falling Out. Which is another one of my favourites, actually. But yeah, exactly. it, it, it is at the end of the day, the A-Tag is just a MacGuffin, you know, in the yeah. George Lucas sense of the word. But yes. And it, it doesn't really matter. It's not an important no. part of the plot. It's, it's the Arc of the Covenant, isn't it? It's yeah, the, it's but just it the does. I think as a, if you're going to make a Bond film, it's the best sort of thing to hang the film around. Because, uh, you know, in the Cold War, this was the sort of thing that people did. You know, this yeah. was what the agencies were after. It wasn't, you know, it was more... A, you know, as with the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spies, it was a load of grey men in a room discussing things and sending out an agent to go and get it. You know, it was, mm. it was like that. If uh, the, in, for the first, say, 20 Bond films, this one's the closest to the Bourne trilogy for me. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, that, it's yeah. got the most rooted in, uh, 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 in reality and, and it, it, it doesn't have uh, over reliance on gadgetry and it's all basically about the abilities of, of, of a, one man and, and the woman who's with him trying to stay alive and trying to get what they need and or vengeance um, it's helped by the stunts oh, oh. The, the Remy Martin stunts in this are superb yeah uh, there's that 2CV chase yeah. which is one well, of the, the, the mini chase in Ball yeah. Yeah. yeah very similar and it's again it's it's the it's wonderfully conceived, and, and I know there's kind of cheesy moments in it, but then you need that to kind of lighten the, the mood. Yeah. But it's just so well made, so well done. Hmm. The characters, like, to agree with you, Gary, like, the, you know, the, the, the two Greek drug dealers, um, was it the Julian Glover and the, the Topol was his name? Julian Glover, by the way, was going to be bombed once upon a time. No, I, can see it. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, Did he end up being Donovan in uh, Holy Grail? Yes, yes. He is the only actor to have appeared in James Bond, Star Wars, and Indiana Jones. Yeah, of course, he was General Veers. General Veers. An- another. Man. I just thought of something else. Another similarity to this in the Majesty's Secret Service. They have a beach scene with a with a yeah. with a lady in a floaty dress being attacked. Yeah. And moving it forwards, uh, the revenge plot with um, uh, Melina. Right. More recently, Camille, Quantum of Solace. Yeah. yeah. Same scenario. She, yeah. she is. Similarly dedicated to hunting down this one guy yeah. and uh, getting revenge for for the terrible things that have been done to her. The one thing that let down this um, this film is that little teenage girl, the yeah. BB or whatever her name is, like like the I'll buy her an ice cream. I'll buy her <laughs> ice cream. Like no, I, I don't even mind that bit because I, personal admission here, the young teenager in me. When I first watched this, quite like the idea of coming back. No, 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 like, I quite Can like the idea. Of, <laughs> no, I quite like the idea of coming home to my hotel room and finding a girl in my bed. I just quite like sure, that. Yeah. But, um, obviously not her, but just that general notion. But the, the worst part is at the end when she's on the trampoline, I wanna win the gold medal! Mm. It's like, no, no, that wasn't needed. What's it like when she's like, oh, we all want that. It's like, you, I know what you want, but you're too old for me. It's like, right, we did not need the paedophilia. We did not need the whinging brat. He was already evil enough without wanting, without leering over a teenage girl. The turtle is not hungry. The turtle Anymore. has been fed. Okay. Okay. Right, so uh, moving on from that one. Uh, th- interestingly enough, slightly before the release of the next one, we got Never Say Never Again. You walk in a room 
Telling um, Alex the story beforehand that I can remember when, when Never Say Never Again and All Twisty were coming out. There was a great, there was a huge rivalry. They, they came out a few weeks apart, you know. And one was the serial wars, yeah, indeed. And one was the big budget, uh, bringing Connery back for an exorbitant fee and all these other top actors in it. And then the other one was was Roger Moore being Roger Moore and being even more camp and silly than usual. Um, but there was this weird, this weird thing. I can't remember which serials it was. But basically, the serial serial boxes ran promotions where you got like stickers and stuff from the from the two films. And I think it was Kellogg's. I can't quite remember. But one of the brands run with Octopussy, and the rival brand run ran with uh, I think it was the, whoever makes Shreddies, which we think was Nestle, isn't it, or whatever it was then. They had they yeah they had a um, never say never again on them. So you had this weird thing of like. Not only were they competing on the screen, they were competing with merchandise and gimmicks as well. Yes, which is a McDonald's game that is played for big bucks these yeah, days. Yeah, the songs of Burger King, yeah, very similar. So, so of the film itself, it, it's, we've got to explain just briefly what, why it's non-canonical, why it's non-official. Uh, I've got, actually got a, a brief Wikipedia article or bits of it to read to you guys, so. It's okay. basically a remake of Thunderball. It is not basically. It is a remake. It is literally. A re- okay. Never say never again has has its origins in the early '60s, following the controversy over the '61 Thunderball novel. Fleming, along with independent producer Kevin McClory and scriptwriter Jack Whittingham, had worked together on a script for a potential Bond film to be called Longitude 78 West, which was subsequently abandoned because of the costs involved. This is before Dr. No came out. Uh, Fleming, always reluctant to let a good idea lie idle, turned this into his novel, Thunderball, which he did not credit either McClory or Whittingham for. McClory then took Fleming to the High Court in London for breach of copyright, and the matter was settled in 1963 after Eon Productions started producing the Bond films. They subsequently made a deal with McClory, who would produce Thunderball, and then not make any further version of the novel for a period of ten years, following the release of the Eon-produced version in 1965. In the mid-70s, McClory again started working on a project to bring a Thunderball adaptation to production, and with the working title Warhead, he brought writer Len Dayton together with Sean Connery to work on a script. The script ran into difficulties after accusations from Eon Productions that the project had gone beyond copyright restrictions, which confined McClory to a film based on the Thunderball novel only, and once again the project was deferred. Towards the end of the 70s, developments were reported on the project under the name James Bond of the Secret Service. When producer Jack Schwartzman became involved and cleared a number of the legal issues that still surround the project, he brought on board scriptwriter Lorenzo Semple Jr. to work on the screenplay. Connery was unhappy with some aspects of the work and asked British television writers Dick Clement and Ian LaFrancis to undertake rewrites, although they went uncredited for their efforts because of a restriction by the Writers Guild of America. You know, those guys who strike and ruin films. Uh, the film underwent one final change in title after Connery had finished filming Diamonds Are Forever. He had pledged that he would never play Bond again. Connery's wife, Mich- Michelin... <laughs> or Micheline, suggested that the title was Never Say Never Again, referring to her husband's vow, and the producers acknowledged her contribution by listing her in the end credits. Title, Never Say Never Again by Micheline Connery. A final attempt by Fleming's trustees to block the film was made in the high courts in London in the spring of 83, but these were thrown out by the court, and Never Say Never Again was permitted to proceed. So basically, it is a shameless remake of Thunderball with Connery. So there's nothing new there. It's not even like more playing 
the Connery role. It's Connery doing the same, literally the same thing again. Mm-hmm. It's baffling to watch. I actually, I think, uh, yeah, I actually think Never Say Never Again is probably one of the better James Bond films, and this kind of weird non canonical, uh, what's the word again? Canonical, whatever. Canonical. canonical. Oh, I can never say that word. Uh, kind of view of it. I, I think you know now you kind of can disregard that and include it as part of the films because it is it is part of the Bond history, and if you take the film. At, face value and, and watch it as a bomb film it's it's extreme although it's a total remake of uh, you know Thunderball, Thunderball. It, it, it's it got some fantastic actors and actresses in it it's well made it's uh, some of these stunt sequences in it are really good some of the action sequences are really good it's taken one of the better films as well as its inspiration so it kind of all fits it's, together uh, as a I think probably a better ending than the original Thunderball did um so I, there isn't really a great deal wrong with it, other than maybe a simpering what Ryan Atkinson in it, and uh, the fact it's not really official. Um, I, that's the thing, because how would it fit into canon? Because at some point, Bond would say, "This film's remarkably familiar." <laughs> Done this before, yeah. Well, I'm not getting on that stretching machine. <laughs> kind of, uh, certainly with the Craig Bonds, they've almost abandoned the canon anyway so at this point I think you could take yeah, every film yeah. as being non-canon or, or being in its, in, in its own in its own right maybe not with the, the more films they all seem to stitch together but I certainly think with the others you, you, you could argue that they are different bonds I'd say the break point was probably um, uh, well actually we'll, we'll get to it in just a second but it was actually um, Living Daylights because that was supposed to be a prequel and a reboot mm. but they decided to just go you know what it's just going to confuse people let's just go ahead and yes. not make a big deal out of the fact that it's the same guy I mean in comparison to Octopussy which as we said came <laughs> out around at the same time I mean I don't mind Octopussy because to me it's a comedy it's not it's like uh, a spoof almost a spoof version of a bomb film and it like Casino Royale 67 kind of yeah I mean it has elements in it which are, are funny and witty, and again, it has some it has some cracking actors. I mean, I um, what's his name? Uh, the Indian, oh, Louis Jordan, yeah. Louis Jordan, who's who plays Kamal uh, Khan. Thank you, thank you, James. And then there's Stephen Burkoff. Yes, I mean, Stephen Burkoff's brilliant. It has some really good bits in it, and it has some really funny set, some really good set pieces, and it has some really funny moments as well. But again, a little bit like um, the Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, sort of thematically and from a narrative point of view, it's a total mess. It's all over the place, yeah. yeah. But again, some really good Remy Martin stunts, particularly the the stuff in Germany with the BMW. It's really good. Um, but it's a, of the it's two a, films, a, Never Say Never Again is by far the better film, though. I, th- I, I haven't watched it recently. I, and the trouble is, all I can remember, I, I don't remember hating it. I don't remember hating it, because I think it was one of the earliest Bonds I watched. Um, shameful. I think I, I think it might even be the first one I watched all the way through. And um, and but all I, whenever I think back to it, all I can remember is Rowan Atkinson being it, being in it, Bond beating the villain at a computer game, and a horse jumping off a cli- uh, jumping off a fortress. That's all I can remember of it. Yeah, as that as Pat Roach doing his thing. Which is, and once again, it's that uh, sense. Especially, a lot of people from the Indiana Jones crew were uh, were on the making of that film, and of course, Irvin Kirsch, the director of the Empire Strikes Back, yeah. Yeah. directing it. But once again, with Bond picking up the video game, he he has this ability to be the best person. Like, you know how people always rip into Avatar at the fact that Jake Sully can be the best Navi that ever lived. 
Bond is the best horse racer. He's the best speedboat driver. He's the best video game player. He's the best rock climber. He's the best everything he turns his fucking hand to. And specifically in the terms of this video game that gives you electric shocks, he, it just gets his ass handed to him. That's how it would work. Because, I mean, you imagine putting your dad, who'd never played it before, on a Call of Duty Black Ops multiplayer and say, there you go, dad. You get electric shocks every time you die. He'd just drop the pad after a few goes and go, nope, enough, cheers, can expire. Yeah, but the, world, the but fate of the world wouldn't it. depend on a game of Call of Duty. Yeah, uh, or, or my dad, frankly. Or your dad, yes. <laughs> In the 1990s, McClory announced plans to make another adaptation, another of the Thunderball story, Warhead 2000 AD, with Timothy Dalton in the lead role. But this was eventually scrapped. In 97, the Sony Corporation acquired all or some of McClory's rights in an undisclosed deal and subsequently announced that it intended to make a series of Bond films, as the company also held the rights to Casino Royale. This move prompted a round of litigation from MGM, which was settled in an out-of-court settlement in which Sony gave up all claims on Bond, although McClory still claimed he would proceed with another Bond film and continued his case against MGM on 27th of August 2001, the court rejected McClory's suit, and McClory died in 2006. Uh, so basically that's kind of the end of his, you know, eternal struggle to, to be recognised as a creator of the Bond franchise. I understand that, yeah, like, if he got screwed over, like, in terms of, you know, the, the idea mm-hmm. he came up with Fleming became a novel, then became a film, etc., like, but to hold a grudge for that long... Most of his life, from the looks of it. Yeah. That's, that's decades. 60, that's 30 years. 60s through to 2006. Like, like no, 46 years. Like 46 years. Old you I just get over it. I imagine it was worth a lot of money to him. Maybe. I'm sure it was, yeah. but... And he, he prob- but he probably spent his entire life going, fucking Chuck Norris, just like so resentful of, of the various people that screwed him over. I don't know. I don't want to make assumptions about the poor guy, but I, I don't see how constantly trying to remake Thunderball is in any way a good idea. You, you just pour all that anger and, and effort into other ideas and try and, try yeah, and outdo the Bond films. You'd, you'd come up with your own spy and try and yeah. outdo the Bond films, wouldn't you? No, no reason you can't do a different spy for God's sake. I'm not totally averse to them remaking earlier Bond films. I know technically they did it with Casino Royale, but it, obviously it was a spoof. But I quite like the idea of them doing that because certainly some of the ones, quite what, some of the more recent Bond films that they've tried to write from scratch mm. have been poor, to say the least. And I think some of those earlier, especially some of the earlier Connery Bonds and on a Majesty's Secret Service in particular, I think deserve like a, a retreatment. So if I, I wouldn't mind them redoing it, providing they do it in a kind of never say never again style. In that it's yes. a remake, but it's, it's not in. They don't so they don't name them all. Like, you know, this is Daniel Craig in Thunderball. No, no, that's no. what I'm saying. So it would be yeah. this, it would be a remake or reimagining of the original film. Because yeah. we've oh, had other yeah. reimaginings, you know, like uh, you know, Planet of the Apes. Okay, there's been well, a bad the, one, but there's been a good one. So you know, yeah. the Golden Eye Game. The Golden Eye Game is a reimagining of the Brosnan Bond made for Craig, and in my opinion is just as good, if not better, than the Yeah, film. I'd, I'd agree with that, yeah. More yeah, on that I'd, I'd love to see that on the screen, but yeah, yeah more on that next, on that next week. week, yeah. Should we move on to the worst one? Uh, are we done, Octopussy? I oh, don't yeah, think there's uh, much else to say, you, other than it's full, of, about it. yeah, full yeah. of jokes. Hiss off. Fabergé egg. Really <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, the thing that irritated me about that was... Um, Monkey costume. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't even that, it was the... Um, I remember Tarzan watching, yeah. the Tarzan yell, and I remember watching um, a documentary on BBC Two. This was one of those, you know, like looking back at you know certain years, 
And it was going on about this craze that was going on in the 80s in Britain of this woman that claimed she could train any dog, no matter how vicious, to sit by looking at them and talking in the exact tone, saying, sit. Yeah. And that Barbara was... Barbara Woodhouse. Yes, okay, yes, her. <laughs> I, I believe you. And like, the fact that that got into a Bond film was like, really... It's such a shame, because I, there were elements of Octopussy I did like. I loved Kamal Khan as a villain. There's loads of good things in it. The, and, the, 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 the scene with the little tiny plane thing, it's cracking, you know, yeah. and... Lately, what the, 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 plane the, the, the plane that comes out of the horse's ass. <laughs> like I said, it's it's if you treat it as a comedy, mm. uh, there's a lot of good things in it. I like the twins. I think they're quite Nina and or Mishka or whatever it is. I mean, they're they're Mishka pretty Grishka. Mishka and Grishka. There you go. They're they're pretty <laughs> vicious, you know. And I, you know, anything with a blade is always nasty. Uh, there's lots of really good things. Maud Adams is miraculously come back from the dead. Thing, mad person. Yeah. Um, and BJ Armitage, the tennis player, hitting yeah. people with a tennis racket. You know. This was the first one that Bernard Lee wasn't in because he died in '81. Yeah. Uh, he was M up until oh, that point. So Robert Brown was the uh, the second M and not really ever credited as being. This was the first minister, one with isn't it? Minister. Yeah. This was the first one with um, Robert Brown as M. He was like an, an M-style he position. Was, he was really, M's um, boss. He was minister. He's the, he's the minister of state for that. This is the country club 007. No, 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 no. He was, he was, he was the minister of defense in, on oh no, a minister of something in Spy Lovely. Cause he, 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 he my, Robert Brown. The spy who lovely. Lovely. Robert Brown turned up in the spy who loved me as a minister of something alongside, um, Bernard Lee as M. Yeah. In, for your eyes only, it was the chief of staff said, oh, M's on leave, etc. And then as of um, Octopussy onwards, he was M. His character was given as M. And he was Robert Brown M. My theory on the uh, these more films being, the, 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 specifically the tail end ones, being like a set of comfy slippers is never more presented than in the lamest song in the entire Bond canon, which is All Time High. Mm-hmm. It's so... Uh... He's Distraction for an hour or two Had no intention to do The things we've done doesn't have the slightest element of danger in it whatsoever. I quite like the Jarvis Cocker version. That, um, yes, that's really good. Yeah. I have yet Absolutely to hear it. I, I bought that album. Though. It's that fantastic. So... I, I, I bought that when it came out. That's superb. Yeah. Mm. Might uh, might finish the show with that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, now uh, so yeah, that, that's pretty much Octopussy, and uh, I t- it's up against the Never Say Never Again. The original version of that song is is also super lame.
First one I ever saw in the cinema. That's the one that starts with um, the lame-ass Beach Boys snowboarding. Oh, uh, just think. Moore is now at this point way too old to do any stunts at all. So they just covered his uh, stuntman completely in skiing gear, and then occasionally shot more on some brick screen. <laughs> this, is, this is why. This is why they should have brought in Dalton one film earlier because D- Dalton could have handled that. Dalton could have pulled that off. They should, yeah. yeah uh, just everything about this film is wrong. I, I, you know, it pains me to say it, but this is the only Bond film I really do not like. I can forgive all of the other ones, you know, the ones that aren't so good, but I detest View to a Kill. And I do watch it every year, and I, every time I watch it, I'm just like, Argh. yeah. And th- it's not just the the film either. Um, I am forever scarred by the Domark video game, which was just awful. I mean, awful. And I spent my hard-earned pocket money to get that. Uh, because I couldn't see the film in the cinema, so I thought I'd buy the video game, and it is dreadful. And so everything about this film, the film was crap, the game was crap, the woman in it is crap, Christopher Walken, who is a great actor, is crap, Grace Jones is not used. It's just stupid. Even the soundtrack, you know, me, I love my soundtracks, even the soundtrack's a bit crap, because the fact that it involves the Beach Boys, but basically it's like John Barry wrote one or two cues and kept using them over and over again. The whole concept of flooding Silicon Valley by... Detonating a bomb in the San Andreas fault is just mind-bogglingly dumb. With a, with a Roadrunner-style amount of TNT. <laughs> Seriously, when he lowers into that cave, you would have to drill down about I... seven miles beneath the surface to even attempt to trigger any kind of you know reaction. And it, the, at those depths, the pressure and the temperature, you wouldn't be able to get an explosive down there. It's just Hang idiotic. On. Are you trying to apply physics to the Bond films? And you told me last <laughs> yeah. week that the world changes around him. Uh, no, I yes. <laughs> yes, I am. I mean, even, even Moonraker. Which, the spy who loved me wants to live under the sea. Yeah, but yeah, there's an element of plausibility about that. I know it is very implausible, but there is a tiny grain of plausibility. Even going into space in a space shuttle and living on a space station, people are doing that now. So there is an element of plausibility in that. Although how you would build it and no one know about it from the Amazon rainforest, who knows? But to try to attempt to change... The geog- uh, you know, sort of geological balance of an yeah. entire continent by with a, with a device the size of a large football is just ridiculous. What? Okay, Stacey Sutton, oh. best Bond girl ever. Oh. Not even close. The uh, uh, we t- we That's joked about this on Twitter, true. Alex, didn't we? But um, yeah. whenever I watch that film and they're in the uh, San Francisco uh, planning department, I'm just um. saying to them, say, let the bitch 
burn. For God's I, sake, let her James burn. James Dudley! I honestly, I honestly keep on expecting, like, whenever I watch that, every single time, I keep subconsciously expecting, when she's shouting, James! Oh, I honestly, it's incessant. It's just, it's incessant. I honestly expect him to open the doors and just say, will you shut the fuck up? I'm busy. Who is the director of this? Let, let's, let's point fingers. Who was John Glenn? John Glenn. Your favourite. Oh, so... What on earth possessed him to say to her, we need more of you saying James in this horrible, yeah. croaky, whiny voice. It's like, it's the sort of voice like she's lying in bed with the flu and she wants a cup of tea. You know, it's just awful. I just, ugh. She's only up against Grace Jones in terms of awfulness. Grace Jones, who I described uh, on Twitter as a seven-foot-tall obelisk made of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> She's ghastly in this. She doesn't seem I, human. I've, I've read, I've read, um, I've read Peter, you know, pieces like reviews of um, of this, you know, going about you know how Grace Jones, you know, is quite a strong character because she, when she gets into bed, she makes sure she's on top. It's like, no, that's still just creepy. Being in bed with Grace Jones, who gives a toss who's on top? It's Charlie just... Brooker said that uh, having sex with Roger Moore would be like an old tree falling on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. Pick up to um, Stacey Sutton. There's there's one point. There's one point in the world's not enough where I'm actually reminded of her every time. It just freaks me out. When they're on the submarine later on, and um, Christmas, Christmas Jones is saying like, if he could, if he'd gotten that in the reactor, he could have ridden off the whole city. Then notices Robert Carlyle has got up. James, it's like it's so scarily cro- close. That I have flashbacks of a burning elevator shaft. Yeah. Actually, you just reminded me of Christmas Jones, so may- maybe Stacy isn't the worst Bond girl ever. Well, we'll, come, we'll come to that. I'm not so sure. I thought Christmas only came once a year. Uh, it's, uh, the turtle is hungry. We were having a, a little bit of a giggle pre-show, uh, Alex, because we were looking at the Rotten Tomatoes ratings for this film. Yep. And it, the top critics... Uh, average score, the kind of Metacritic score, I suppose, is 14%. Oof. So that is, and uh, bearing in mind, probably the average just scanning through is probably about 60. It's by far the worst reviewed of all the Bond films, and by no surprise, really, because it is just dreadful in every sense. And uh, Roger Roger Moore, as you you rightly said also, just wheezing and coughing his way through it. And to make him look young, they... um, (laughs) <laughs> they, 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 put him, they put him in Bermuda shorts. <laughs> yeah. I just, they did what? They put him, uh, is it Patrick McNee? Uh, yes. As, they Patrick McNee, yeah. as, as his, as his inverted commas, you know, uh, Lord and Butler. Uh, just to make him look younger. I'm sure that's the only reason he's in it. <laughs> they do tend to, keep, tend to keep the bonds a little too long. Like the long running bonds, they keep it a little too long. This is essentially Moore's Diamonds Are Forever. This mm. is a, Yes, you, you, yes, you, you pushed your luck. This or is, Moore's uh, this, uh, Die Another Day. Die Another Day, exactly, yeah. Exactly. Like, it's, it's like you were doing really well, and you've kind of just pushed it one film too far. So apart from Dalton and Lazenby, they should all have done one less film than they did. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So Daniel Craig but, needs to watch the fuck out. But the, 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 the only difference I'd say is Brosnan, like, was not enough, I personally thought was still a good... It wasn't going... It wasn't a terrible film in the... Was like, you know, Octopussy was a comedy. It's like, right, clearly this is getting old now. Now we need to think about it. Oh, no, wait, Futile Kill, let's do this. Oh, no, wait, this is terrible. We should have stopped that. It wasn't a franchise killer. It wasn't a franchise killer, exactly. Yeah. But he, I suppose, yeah, Futile Kill, Diamonds Are Forever, um, and uh, Die Another Day all technically could have been people going, enough already. Yeah. <laughs> Even Remy Martin's stunts in License to Kill are rubbish. You know, car splitting in half, sorry, though, that's just... Uh, 
But the, the car split in half, I don't mind. It's the person, it's the Frenchman who owned the taxi, the, the, the car in the first place. Who horrendous, <laughs> he's horrendously dubbed and chases after yeah, the car. Yeah, well, oh, John oh, Glenn oh, again, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, my God! Yeah. I, think, I think, for our own sakes, I've, I don't want to talk about it anymore. No. Yeah, that's, that'll do. <laughs> the name that means excitement is back. Bond. James Bond. That girl must be very talented. Shoot up. Believe me, my interest in her is purely professional. What is this? I've had a few optional extras installed. Wherever he goes, adventure follows. Two of our men are dead. Koskoff's name to you. Then I must die. Eliminate him. Kill him! for danger. He lives for the moment. He lives on the edge. Whoever she was, I must have scared the living daylights out of her. James Bond, 007, The Living Daylights. So then 1987 came along, and Roger Moore, who didn't even like the last film, and didn't even like the Duran Duran song, the only redeeming feature of that film, because the Duran Duran <laughs> song rocks. He, he said he didn't like it, it was too poppy. He doesn't like pop. Just showing what a granddaddy was at that time. Um, yeah, then suddenly we got this brand new Timothy Dalton, who is like, where the fuck have you been, Tim? You should have been here ten years ago. <laughs> Doing his thing on the Rock of Gibraltar. Underused, underrated, undervalued. Undervalued, absolutely. It's just brilliant. And, uh, you know, for all those who, you know, who are going about, oh, the old Bonds are crap, I like Daniel Craig, etc., he he is the pre-Craig. You could have quite happily gone from um, Dalton to Craig and it would have made sense. I was listening to, well, I was watching License to Kill earlier today and uh, there were some bits of his delivery which actually sounded like Daniel Craig. I'm like, ooh, 
that's where he got it from. Yeah, yeah. I, I say the only kind of slight issue I have with Timothy Dalton. I really like him and, uh, as a, again as an actor in general, and I think he made a great bond. But he does occasionally sort of drop into valley speak. You know, uh, the Welsh does come through, particularly when he gets angry. So there's a scene with Timothy Dalton where he gets really angry with Kara, and he just starts to sound like this really sort of angry South Wales. Uh, right, Cara, are you really yeah, getting my book now? Exactly. <laughs> it really comes through really strong. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm you, a bit upset. You suddenly realise, no, it's not quite the same James Bond that we've seen. If you make him take it to grave, then we'll be late for film, and all the work we did will be destroyed. Can't you cut one of the less important films? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Which are the less important Bond films, then? I've got to hear this. <laughs> one of those Welsh ones. You mean the Timothy Dalton ones? He didn't play it as a Welshman. He didn't say the name's Bond. Jones the Bond. Double seven. License to kiss. In the last days, we've got we've basically gone Scottish, Australian, uh, English, English, Irish, Welsh, Irish, and then Welsh, Daniel Craig English, English, English again. again. So, yeah. It, Okay, so we've got all bases covered, basically. But yeah, yeah. It, it does occasionally creep through. But I think he's, yank he's, and then he's really good. And he's done. He is really good, and he does again. It's because this is a, a kind of a reboot. All the reboots, as I said earlier, seem to be the ones where they they kind of make Bond vicious again and make Bond kind of very sort of focused and and, and hmm. uh, yeah, sort of uh, detached as all, as well from what's going on around him. They did it with Lazen B, they did it with Dalton in this one. They didn't do it with Moore. He's the exception, really. And, and to go back to last, like, was it last times when we were discussing whether it's one bond or multiple bonds, I love the fact that this is, this is meant to be one bond and you suspend the, dis- dis- you know, the disbelief and it's, it's the same bond. The fact that he's so bitter about yeah. how long he has been doing this job. Like the, the great scene when they're, he's, he's fine, he's, Kind of almost half-assed smuggled Koskov out of the um, out of the uh, USSR. He's driving through and he's like, "Yeah, like I'll oh, stuff my orders. If M fires me, I'll thank him for it." There's actual bitterness and venom there. Yeah, and and I love that. I absolutely he, he does that really well. He pulls that off really well. You couldn't picture more being that angry. No, no. You could. The, the thing with all of the other bonds is that. They either resign in the first film, or they act like they couldn't give a shit and they're about to resign. Mm. You know, they they've had enough of the job and and they just want to, you know, retire to the yeah. conservative club right. and play and play. Moore seems to like the lifestyle. Yeah. More, more seems to he, he just sort of lives it up. He wants to, you you, feel, you get the sense that he he loves what he's doing. He loves being this. Wants to go and insult foreigners. <laughs> yes, he wants to. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, but uh, yeah, I. I you know, I agree with both of you. I think this is, the, this is a fantastic film. Again, I, I would put this probably in the top top three or four of the, of the of series. Of all the ones we're discussing today, it's my fave. Yeah, it's, I, it's I, definitely I see that. For me, it's also very similar to Quantum of Solace. Like, I, when, I, when I saw Quantum of Solace, like, I was a bit disappointed the first time around. Then I when I watched it the second time. I was like, okay, no, no. Now, like, Quantum of Solace, and we'll talk about this next week, like, you don't understand what's going on until the very end, and even then it's not completely clear. When you watch it back the second time around, knowing what's coming later, everything starts to make sense. This film is just like that. First yeah. time you watch it, you have not a clue what's going on, and they sort of throw in, they keep throwing in, you know, first it's assassinations and defection, and then they throw in diamond smuggling and weapons trading and drug dealing, and I get really confused. And then when you watch it back, it's like, oh, now hang on, they're being played from the start here, and it works. And when you watch it the second viewing, you actually understand it, and I like that. Unfortunately, because of the way the world has gone, this film's also horribly dated. 
So, mm. uh, you know, the Mujahideen don't exist anymore, you know, and they, they're kind of fragmented into various other factions, including the Taliban. So, you know, it, it, it feels very odd to see uh, a film set in Afghanistan in not so long ago. And this, this is completely the, this is the last place. of the Cold War films, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, and it, it again, it, it kind of plays to those those the, the Cold War cliches, doesn't it? A bit, but mm. um, at least again, the plot and the story, although not its strongest points, they are based in a sense of reality. And, and uh, uh, I like it when Bond is actually in sort of Eastern Europe because for me, you know, the whole Cold War area, everything should be based around. Eastern Europe at some point, either as a he should be going there or something must have come from there, and uh, yeah. this this at least takes it back to that that area. Cara herself uh, is one of my favourite Bond girls, uh, simply because she's delicate. You could see that there's a certain element of protection uh, in in Bond himself. He's irritated by her, but she doesn't dive at him pelvis first, and I don't. They don't actually have sex, not on camera, yeah. um, and uh, it, you know, to, to a degree, she retains a certain purity from that because. Um, you know, she she has other things to do. Uh, then it's not just about it. To that end, she so, kind of reminds me of Camille because they never have sex either. Mm-hmm. She also didn't scream, and um, and she's one of the, she's one of the few Bond girls that that you know, albeit you know, they're not. She's not like a triple X in you know in terms of she's fully trained and everything, but and but she wants to impress him and wants to help him mm. because she recognises that he's a good person that he, she owes him that and and what he's trying to do is important, so she tries to help him, i.e., trying to fly a Hercules. But it's also proof that Bond girls don't have to be super tough to be the best kind of Bond girls. Exactly, they, yeah. They can they can have fragility to them as well, and ultimately it's, there's a, there's a rainbow of different mm. females that could be in and out of Bond's life, and she's at the top. Just some, just reading some of the press reaction to this, I just caught a, a quote. I just well, not quote, but. Um, Roger Ebert, who I don't really have a lot of time for anyway, mm. basically criticised this film for a lack of humour in the protagonist. So basically, Moore's Bond had completely changed the expectations of critics and the mm. audience alike as to what to expect. It's almost like they expect it to be funny. The comedy. The fu- yeah. West funny Bond. This was an attempt to get back to Fleming's Bond. No one really embraced Timothy Dalton. <clears throat> he was never anyone's favourite Bond. There was never the uh, the same kind of um, the rallying to Daniel Craig uh, or Pierce Brosnan uh, that I remember for, for for Dalton. Well, Daniel Craig was a controversial choice, wasn't he? So it wasn't until <laughs> Quantum um, Casino Royale came out that yeah. people actually liked it. I mean, up until that point, there was a huge campaign on the internet to, to for, for him to not appear in it. Oh, I know, I know. But afterwards, ultimately, people yeah. you know really kind of embraced him as as Bond. That yes, this is Bond. We don't need to go back to Pierce. But uh, you know, back in the day, people were. I mean, it might just be the fact that we never really got the chance to to actually be. I, I say that, but ultimately, as far as I'm concerned, Brosnan got three good Bond films. So what, how many Bond films did Dalton really need? Just the third one, and that would have well, been it? He got yeah. completely screwed by the second film. Which Dalton got about, one, didn't he? Dalton yeah. said, as, much as, as much as I love License to Kill, we'll go on to that in a bit, mm. like, as much, I, I love License to Kill, but you know, I agree with you guys, it's not a Bond film. So he only got one decent Bond film. He's kind of the anti-Lazenby. Mm. It, it destroyed. Yeah. It destroyed yeah, because he can act. Yeah. The, yeah. Yes. Well, those he could do his stunts at least. But yeah, the the, the 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 second film that he made destroyed the character. That's the biggest mistake. So people For could no longer. Uh, yeah, they could no longer associate Dalton with Bond because mm. the second film had basically turned him into something completely different anyway. So how do you come back from that? 
I wonder if if they'd um, if in an you know alternative reality that you know, that he did more films and the second and his second film wasn't Licensed to Kill. Okay. I wonder how good he would have been, or if he did if he if he's just good because you just see him in in that first go where he's putting all his effort in because he wants to keep this job. I've and heard, he never got a chance to suck. Yeah, I saw yeah him, exactly. I saw him interviewed once, and he was asked about the, the films, and, and he was quite guarded in what he said, but he basically said he didn't enjoy making that second film either. Mm. So I think I think even if they'd have asked him back to do a third, he probably wouldn't have done it. He liked the first. He liked, I think he, he liked the first one a lot, and when he talks about Bond, he, he always talks about Living Daylights, but he kind of skirts around. Uh, license to kill well let's not do that ourselves shall we let's get license to kill done and we can go home okay License to Kill, 1989, Diana Ross song. One of my favourite uh, Bond songs. It's got a really kind of boom, jazzy kind of feel to it. It felt much more like a classic kind of Shirley Bassey-style Bond song. Mm. Certainly following having you know tunes by Aha, Duran Duran, and then Carly you know, Simon. <laughs> Carly Simon, yeah, like, but like you know, it, it was the first and what's it? I wishy washy all time high. It was the first decent Bond song since. Shelly Bassey and Moonraker. I, I um, don't even my, rate Moonraker, especially because of that awful pe- poppy disco version of Moonraker at the end. Oh God, yeah, forgot about. Yeah, well, yeah, but what about what about the gay sailor version of um, Nobody Does It Better at the end? Nobody does <laughs> it better. better. <laughs> um, no, it's great, great song. I think the only reason I, I don't like it is it goes on a little too long. Mm. For my liking, but great song. I suppose the, the 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 last big boom bombastic one probably was actually the man with the golden gun. Thinking about it, yeah. Ultimately, yeah, it's it's the last brassy one. It's got a <laughs> the last unabashed one. You know? Yeah, it's got very fast tempo. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah. So Dynamos does a really good job there. So okay, right. Here's the issue with the license to kill. It feels, and I could be wrong. Uh, like a film that they've basically given a Bond c- 
control to paint to. Yeah. And it feels like they've, they've gone, we don't know what to do with this guy. Cold War's ended, so let's make him contemporary and deal with drug dealers. And they just sort of chuck him in there, and he's like man on fire, because, you know, they, they do a really good job of, of setting up why it really genuinely bothers him what happens to Felix and his wife. They, they just allude to it, and ultimately it's, it's what happened to Tracy, and they, and, and they go, look, he's, he's, He's being fueled by his own pain at this point. He's going after Sanchez. He's making it personal. And he doesn't talk about that. That's maybe a missed opportunity. But the rest of the film, it's it's just sort of like seaplanes and cocaine and <laughs> Benicio Del Toro with a flick knife yeah. and uh, truck chases. And it's, it's it, it, there's not a lick of pine wood about it. Not a shred. Obviously, it's because they didn't go anywhere near Pinewood. It feels, a bit, too, they it feels a bit too Hollywood, doesn't it? Yeah, they filmed a yeah. little bit in Pinewood, didn't they? They filmed the, the, pyra- the inside of the pyramid scene. Some of those are in Pinewood. Oh, right, right. But, I mean, uh, this came out at the same sort of time as, you know, Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. Mm. And, you know, yeah. this, and you can see that they were basically pushing Bond in that direction. High Octane, I believe, is the... Uh, yeah, term. and they kind of invent this this sort of... Uh, revenge plot with Felix and bringing back an actor from, you know, umpteen bonds ago and it just... Which they didn't have to do. That was uh, kind of a good idea, but... Yeah. yeah, it just it just feels kind no, of weird. Question, I mean, I don't question, just... If, they, if they'd have brought in a brand new Felix Leiter, even if it was the um, the Felix Leiter from the previous film, would you have had any sort of connection with him? I don't think it makes too much difference. I, I think you, you understand if you you know if you watch a Bond film you must have you know you must be invested in the Bond franchise in some way and by this point anyway and I, I don't really think it mattered who played him by bringing him in it made it easier to remind viewers what who Felix Leiter was because he hasn't been in the last few films but I I don't know there's just the Everything, you know, creating this revenge plot and then having him resign, so he's this kind of, you know, like you said, man, man, man on fire. It's kind of Ronin, if you like. Um, it just, it. Whilst I quite like the film, uh, there's a few th- things later on that irritate me. I, I don't mind the film; it's okay. It's quite good as a sort of cheesy action film. It's nowhere near as good as something like Lethal Weapon or Die Hard, which is what it was trying to compete with. And it's nowhere near as good as some of the other Bond films. And for that reason, it ends up as this kind of curious you know, side cul-de-sac they went up, they went down. I still kind of prefer it to almost all the more films. Because oh, same. Absolutely. I, I like Dalton on screen. It's, it, but the word remind that you just came up with there uh, regarding Felix is is what they play throughout the whole film. They're like reminding you, oh, he's Bond, just in case you forgot. Yeah. Just like every every so often they're like, oh, Christ, um, let's have an extended scene with Q because I think at this point we're beginning to stray from the character. And let's, let's bring in the closest thing to M we've got. <laughs> uh, it's it's so far away from his base point. It's like if they'd had a scene when he actually went back to the office uh, and they, they sort of recreated that, at least there would have been a few more anchor points for you to actually go, yeah, okay, well, that's definitely Bond. Uh, get him, you know, get him in England at some point, just for a bit. But it's so sun-drenched and it's so fast-paced. Uh, to a degree, you can almost say the same thing about Quantum of Solace. It kind of goes off at the deep end, like trying to smash you in the face with action and tension and drama, uh, that it kind of it forgets a few of the hallmarks of the uh, series. Not necessarily as a, a terrible, terrible bad thing, but um, 
it, it loses its way most definitely. And I, I completely see why people were just like, do, do we need this guy? It gets, it also gets worse as the film goes on. So I think the kind of middle section of the film is quite interesting in what's going on and the fact that he's trying to, you know, he's generally going undercover this time, you know. Infiltration, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he sort of befriends the villain and the villain is a kind of, uh, um, it's very similar to the, the Chief in, um, Mm. Uh, um, Casino Royale. Casino Royale. So, it, you know, it's that kind of character's needs. Yeah, actually, Robert Davy uh, based his performance on uh, how, he, how he interpreted the chief from the yep. book. Okay, yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, so it, yes, but then you get to the end and it's like, okay, well, we better make lots of explosions and we need to make sure Bond gets covered in blood because that's never really happened before either. Mm. Uh, and then we have 18 wheelers doing wheelies, which is just, you know, that upsets me beyond anything <laughs> I, I really like that bit with the truck and the missiles <laughs> I mean uh, okay going up on its side I can believe because they did it but I'm sorry a the, the, a rig on an 18 wheeler the weight of that thing there's just no way it could do a wheelie and it doesn't it doesn't even do a wheelie if you look at it it basically articulates on its rear wheels so it's it's a fake front of the truck it's just yeah it's just so yeah. nasty and cheap and horrible <laughs> It totally devalues the whole end sequence. Uh, but yeah, this is also, um, this was the most violent Bond, um, when it came out for, for many, many years. It was, in fact, until the, um, uh, deluxe edition in 2006, it was never released uncut, even on video or DVD. It was basically, even, even with the a 15 series, certificate. Yes, yeah, the only one in the series that has a 15 certificate. All the mm. others are PG or 12. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, I think all the ones beforehand had been PGs. Yeah. The version that I watched today was, I mean, the version I watched a few months ago was the uncut version, and then I remember very specific moments that were, um, uh, uh, left back in. I was like, ooh, that's a bit grimmer than I remember. Cause I'd never seen the entirely uncut version, but the one I saw today, they cut away just before dude's head explodes inside that pressure chamber. And it's like, oh. <laughs> and, uh, there's just a few frames here and there that they just trim away, like Benicio del Toro getting minced, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know, poor Felix, and, and just various bits, which just make you go, Christ, what were they going to do with Bond? Were they going to make this an R-rated Bond film? Yeah. Like, was it an R? There uh, we go. Motion picture rating PG-13. Really PG-13? Yeah. For action, violence, and drug content. Lots and lots of like choppings and like cut out his heart. It uses 13 uses of hell, 4 uses of ass, 4 uses of shit, 3 uses of bastard, 2 uses of damn, 2 uses of goddamn. So does this show. Bond smokes and drinks. This <laughs> <laughs> uh, is frightening intensity. It's very intense. It was the most emotional and violent Bond film when it's released. Not recommended for young children. Plenty of death. So that's the official uh, MPAA rating. The music was by Michael Kamen, who had just come fresh off of Die Hard, and there are so many cues in it that you're like, you know what, that's Nakatomi Tower. Yeah. And there's just, it, it, it feels very much like they were trying to capture the same flavour. That said, I do quite like his arrangement of the Bond theme, particularly mm. when they, uh, what's it, when, he, when they're flying and they capture the plane. Yeah, it's got that. Yeah, that bit is great. I like, they're, they're just a build up to it. The boom, boom, boom. Boom, it's like, I know what's coming. Boom. 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 It's all ba-ba-na. It's like, you know, kind of, yeah, it's the bomb thing.
don't quite like the uh, the flute in the background. It's like, and then they they kind of repeat it every now and then throughout the film. Like again, it, it works kind of during the um, the seaplanes and the the you know, what the the skiing the water skiing behind the plane, etc. It works when they're doing it with the the lorries. It's not quite as dramatic because. I don't know the, the sight of the lorry going up and on, on its wheels and driving through flames isn't quite as exciting as you know capturing a plane and dropping it or you know harpooning a plane and fly and skiing behind it. I don't know, it just it was all a bit lackluster. I do love the bit where that guy gets stuck in the pressure chamber and then Sanchez bursts it and then they just. So yeah, that basically this killed Bond. It was the many many years. That's the worst box office of any Bond film. Just just seen it. Yeah. By a considerable margin as well. Worse than View to a Kill. Yep. View to a Kill in today's money made three hundred and sixteen million, but this one only took two seven one. Oh um, Jesus. So basically people were kind of getting sick of um Well it, it the transition didn't work. It you know, yeah. it was the wrong character and the wrong series to do that with. It's a shame because, like, in my opinion, it's not the worst of the Bond films. No, no, not at all. Like, it, I can think of at least three others that are worse. Well, exa- than it. Exactly. It, it's when you look back on it, it's a good film. Even if it's not completely a Bond film, it's still good as a film. It's still good to watch. Not, you know, not directly against those films that it was coming out to try and compete with, but in terms of the series, it's just, it's still for me, it's a not, it's a good entry to the series. Um, it's a shame that it just damn near killed it. Yeah. It cost a hundred. It, it cost thirty-two million. It only made a hundred fifty-six million. It it made five times its budget, and that's still considered a flop. What the yeah. fuck, greedy bastards. Yeah. I don't know how Hollywood works, but it works badly. Well, it's because the total number was down. See, they don't. You know, the once they've spent the money, the money's gone. So then they're all really interested in how much it brings in. Well, uh, Living Daylights cost forty million and made one hundred and ninety-one. So basically, yeah. yeah, it made less than its predecessor. Yeah. Uh, let's see, View to a Kill. View to a Kill was one hundred and fifty-seven million. So it only made a little tiny bit more. Yeah. Um, but it was also <laughs> cheaper. So, but at this point, I mean, the last three or four Bond films had 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 put fairly mediocre box office compared to the. Yeah. The series, so its heyday was basically the um, the, the Connery films, then and then the Spy Love Me sort of yeah. more films. So basically, it took um, th- the next step, and that took six goddamn years of putting it to rest. And I think, in fact, if you look, it's John Glenn who progressively kills it. <laughs> so he starts off yeah. um, with Eyes Only, which is pretty good, and then uh, you know, other than Just runs uh, it into the ground, <laughs> Living Daylights, so he basically ran it into the ground. Yeah. So, I mean, in in all seriousness, I think we talked about this in video game terms, going away for many years and then coming back is actually a good thing. I think just constantly shitting out new movies every one year, every two years, certainly every one year, you get Call of Duty Syndrome, where it's just the same goddamn thing over and over again. So, uh, yeah, like Metal Gear Solid had to disappear for a while and then come back on the PlayStation, it... um, it can really benefit a series if you give you gives you time to, to work out what's relevant about it now. And for all golden last flaws, I thought you know it was the time away did suit it well. Save it for next week. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, basically teaser, that was a teaser. That was a segue. But basically, folks, we're leaving you now at the, the at James Bond's darkest hour, a time when we thought that he would never come back from out of this sort of weird obscurity that he belonged to, because ultimately he was a Cold War agent and the Cold War was over. He was Austin Powers. And more on that next week. <laughs> so to finish off, gentlemen, plug your shows. 
I'll let James do it. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us obviously at Game Burst. Uh, Game Burst is a bi-weekly, is it bi-weekly or twice weekly? Twice weekly. Twice weekly. Yeah, twice weekly. Half an hour games podcast. News on the Sunday. Roundtable or replay or quiz on the Thursday. You can find us at www.gameburst.co.uk. Um, and yeah, head on over and, uh, we're, we're good fun, honest. Okay, so the version of Never Say Never Again you heard earlier was by Lani Hall. That was the lame version that was in the uh, original film. But there was an alternative one, uh, sung by Phyllis Hyman, who uh, now sadly no longer with us, uh, which I think is way, way better. And I think it's somewhat appropriate for around, the, around this time in Bond's career, when we weren't sure if we'd ever see him again. We shall see you next week. James Bond will return. I'll never say no way to know the ways of love. I never say never Yeah.